Welcome to the mop-up, to our very special January 6th viewing party edition of the mop-up for July 21st, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is killing me and I have no air conditioner. Well, Joe Biden was looking for some positive news, and he got some today. He tested positive for COVID. The White House says the president is working in isolation, so it's pretty much business as usual. It's not like Biden's going to get on Air Force One and fly down to West Virginia to take on Joe Manchin. No, he announced his big executive order on climate change this week in Massachusetts. Really brave, Joe, going into enemy territory when it comes to climate change. Massachusetts. I hope he won over the voters in Massachusetts when it comes to climate change. No, you announce your executive order in West Virginia or in Arizona, where cinema is from. You go to West Virginia to challenge Joe Manchin or you you go to Arizona where cinema is where and they're feeling the record heat in Arizona and Massachusetts. Well, Biden tested positive this morning and he's taking the antiviral drug Paxlovid, which is an emergency release made possible by the Food and Drug Administration. Meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, the trial of Steve Bannon is continuing this week. He uh, faces misdemeanor contempt of Congress charges after he ignored a subpoena to appear before the January 6th committee. The January 6th committee wants to know what Bannon was planning the night before the insurrection over at the Willard Hotel, which is right next door to the White House. They subpoenaed Steve Bannon so he would tell the committee what exactly he meant when he said to his podcast listeners this on january 5th all hell is going to break loose tomorrow what what do you think he meant by that it was january 5th he was talking to his podcast listeners and he said the night before what 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 did he all hell is going to break loose tomorrow gee i wonder what he was talking about maybe he was talking about the chili cheesesteak he ate and <laughs> was worried about what he was going to do to the bathroom, or maybe it was the January 6th riot. Well, his defense, he's on trial this week. The defense rested without Bannon ever taking the stand. Bannon pleaded not guilty. If convicted, Steve Bannon would face a minimum of 30 days in prison. On Tuesday, speaking of all hell breaking loose, Chipotle, did I pronounce it properly? Chipotle or Chipotle or whatever. Chipotle, Chipotle closed the first restaurant in its chain to go union. Last month, workers in an Augusta, Maine, Chipotle filed with the National Labor Relations Board saying they have voted to unionize. Chipotle responded by closing down the restaurant. Chipotle union organizer Brandy McNeese said in a statement, quote, this is union busting 101 and there is nothing that motivates us to fight harder than this underhanded attempt to shut down the labor movement within their stores. 
Chipotle, she went on to say, is scared because they know how powerful we are. And if we we catch fire like the unionization effort over at Starbucks, they won't be able to stop us. Well, Starbucks is closing stores and they're firing union organizers and they're refusing, despite what the law says, Starbucks is refusing to negotiate with the Starbucks union the same way Jeff Bezos over at Amazon is refusing to negotiate with Christian Smalls and the Amazon labor union. They don't obey the laws of America. By law, Starbucks, Chipotle, and Amazon have to negotiate with the workers, but they don't They are immune to our taxation laws and our labor laws. Julian Assange is not immune to American law. He awaits extradition to the United States on 17 charges of violating a more than 100-year-old law called the Espionage Act. A judge in Great Britain recently ruled that Assange must be turned over to American authorities, but lawyers for Assange now say they will submit yet another appeal to the British courts in late August. In Britain, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said goodbye. Here is his farewell message. We've helped, I've helped to get this country through a pandemic and help save another country from barbarism. And frankly, that's enough to be going on with. Mission largely accomplished for now. Wow, he uh, he said he accomplished a lot as prime minister. He said that he helped Great Britain stave off the COVID infection and he saved Ukraine. Mission mostly mission mostly accomplished. Where have I heard that before? What other fool said that? I can't remember. I think I heard somebody else as dangerous as Boris Yeltsin saying mission accomplished. I. I don't remember where. Well, here is Boris's last lesson that he wanted to impart to his fellow parliamentarians. This is this is the message that Boris Johnson wants to leave us with. Remember, remember a bubble. It's not Twitter that counts. It's the people that sent us here. It's not Twitter that counts. It's uh, the people who sent us to the parliament. Not most Brits, just the people uh, we're beholden to. Well, I guess uh, that's the big news coming out of Great Britain. Nothing else to report uh, about Great... Oh, hang on. Late breaking news. Some breaking news now. Sky News understands uh, the RAF has halted flights in and out of RAF Bryce Norton because the runway has melted in this extreme weather. Hmm. Uh, I guess uh, he didn't say anything about climate change when he said goodbye. The runway is melting. Well, who cares? That's that's Great Britain. I can't help it if they can't get their shit together when it comes to climate change. That's, you know, 
That's Great Britain. We got it together here in the United States. Dallas, Oklahoma City and Tulsa all approaching 110 degrees in the days ahead. Doctors and public officials urging caution tonight, urging Americans to stay inside if possible, to stay cool and, of course, hydrate. Make sure you're drinking water. Power grids under stress and anxious eye on Texas, of course, after what happened there before. And here in New York tonight, Con Ed sending alerts to customers to conserve power. Wow. Okay. (laughs) The January 6th committee is holding hearings tonight starting at 8 p.m. So we're going to do the show live in our Zoom room and on YouTube. Then we will stop recording, watch the hearings together. We're going to have a viewing party in our Zoom room. And then we will hit the record button, go live once again on YouTube and talk about what we just saw with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn from Americans United for Separation of Church and State, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America, and the professors in Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Professor Ann Lee. And then I will take your calls to hear what you think about tonight's hearings. If you're watching us right now live on YouTube, I'm going to shut down the YouTube feed once the hearings start at 8 p.m. And the watch party will be in our Zoom room, our virtual studio audience. And if you'd like to join us in our virtual studio audience for the watch party, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the pay-per-view button, And it will give you the link to join us in the Zoom room. It says pay-per-view. It's free. We just call it pay-per-view. We just use the pay-per-view button. And you can watch with us and join the conversation afterwards. After the hearings, we will go live again on YouTube for our wrap-up. Most of the people hearing this right now are my podcast listeners, and this has nothing to do with you. You will get your normal full show at 3 a.m. Eastern on Friday, just know that three hours into the show is when we begin our wrap up of the January 6th hearing scheduled for tonight at 8 p.m. But if you're listening to this, that would be yesterday uh, at 8 p.m. Lots and lots and lots to get to today. Of course, the deadly heat waves, climate change, abortion, guns and January 6th. A lot of focus, of course, on the hearings. But what about Merrick Garland over at the Justice Department? Well, yesterday, Merrick Garland was giving a press conference and he was asked whether or not he was willing to prosecute Donald Trump. Here's what he said. You got to listen. It's a little low. Look, no person is above the law in this country. No, no person is above the law in this country. So in other words, he's not going to prosecute Donald Trump. Look, he's got to go before a jury and convict Donald Trump. 70, what, 75 million people voted for this clown. Half the jury has to, if you're going to pick a jury, half that jury has to have voted for Trump. I just don't see how you get a conviction. I, I, I just don't see how it's possible. Well, on Wednesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee held hearings to mark up their 2021 assault weapons ban. They're going to try to bring back 
the assault weapons ban. I guess some stuff has been happening that concerns them. And they're also going to try to pass the Equal Access for Victims of Gun Violence Act. David Hogg, founder of March for Our Lives and a survivor of the shooting in Parkland four years ago, he interrupted a House committee that was also holding hearings on the assault weapons ban. Hogg shouted at Republican Congressman Andy Biggs, who claimed instead of an assault weapons ban, we need Americans to be armed against an invasion along the southern border. David Hogg screamed at him, quote, the shooter at my high school was anti-Semitic, anti-black and racist. The shooter in El Paso described it as an invasion what Hogg meant by it, he was referring to the 2019 shooting at a Texas Walmart. Uh, Hogg went on to say those guns are coming from the United States of America. They aren't coming from Mexico. You are the, are you are reiterating the points of a mass shooter, sir. Hogg was forcibly removed from the hearing by Capitol Police. Well, back in the Senate, here is what Senator Tammy Duckworth had a say about the assault weapons ban. I refuse to do nothing in the face of a deadly epidemic of gun violence that is now the leading cause of death of young Americans. Let me say that now. The leading cause of death of Americans under the age of 16 in this country isn't cancer, isn't car accidents, it's gun violence. Only in America. Only in America. That's Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat who served in Iraq where she lost both her legs. She represents Illinois, where a mass shooting took place on July 4th in Highland Park. Seven people were shot to death. Nancy Rodering is the mayor of Highland Park. And here's what she told the committee yesterday. And the most disturbing part, this is the norm in our country. Highland Park had the uniquely American experience of a 4th of July parade turn into what has now become a uniquely American experience of a mass shooting. How do we call this freedom? Other advanced nations live free of fear, gun, free of, fear of gun violence, and we know that mental health issues exist everywhere in our world. American mayors, and I've talked to several in these past few weeks, fear not if, but when a mass shooting is going to hit our towns. What's different about the U.S.? The U.S. has civilian access to assault weapons and large-capacity magazines. That is the only differentiating factor. In 2013, in the wake of Sandy Hook, we as a city banned assault weapons and large-capacity magazines. We knew that a federal ban would be the most effective, but a local ban reflecting the values of our community was our only option under the law. Local governments cannot do this alone. Congress must take action. You must federally ban assault weapons and large-capacity magazines. Today is the day to start saving lives. Thank you. Yeah, if you live in Illinois, you depend on the federal government to stop the flow of assault weapons and guns coming into your state. You can pass gun laws in Highland Park, but you're right next door to Indiana, where on July 1st, they said anybody can carry a concealed weapons. This isn't a state's rights issue. This is the federal government. The federal government has to step in and uh, do something about this. I love what she said. You call this freedom? They're so busy talking, you know, about the Second Amendment. People keep talking about their freedoms. Well, the rest of us have zero freedom because of their obsession 
with guns. Abortion, Judge Clarence Thomas made it clear that the court isn't stopping with Roe v. Wade. He wants to go after gay marriage, even gay sex and contraception. The Democrats were accused of being asleep at the switch for never bothering to codify a woman's right to abortion as a law, a law that could not be overturned by right-wing extremist judges sitting on the Supreme Court. A week ago, the House passed two bills that would guarantee a woman's right to an abortion, as well as her right to travel across state lines to get that abortion. It passed, but it passed pretty much along party lines. Republicans would not vote for it, which means a bill legalizing abortion will not get the 60 votes needed to overcome a filibuster in the Senate. This week, Nancy Pelosi's House passed a law legalizing gay marriage. Stefanik, a few Republicans, Liz Cheney, uh, voted in favor of that. They passed another law in the House legalizing contraception. This is how far back this Supreme Court, this Republican Party wants to take us. They want to overturn Griswold from the 60s and take away our our right to buy contraception. Today, the House passed a law that would enshrine both a man and a woman's right to use contraception. Well, you would think that would pass overwhelmingly. No, no, no. 228 to 195. 195 Republicans voted against contraception. Here's Congresswoman Angie Craig. She is a Democrat from the great state of Minneapolis. Here's Congresswoman Angie Craig. This is really about rolling back our rights, the rights of American women. I am disheartened. I am disappointed. And quite frankly, I'm appalled that we have to vote on this damn bill at all. First, they voted against codifying Roe. Then 77% of them, don't give the 47 credit, 77% of them yesterday voted against allowing my family and I to continue to exist as a family. This is not an extremist issue. This is an extremist GOP. They have turned into an extremist party, a radical party that is opposed to everything that my constituents value, freedom and liberty and their own rights. This is great politics on behalf of Nancy Pelosi. This is great politics because she's forcing the Republican Party's hands. You know, we take it for granted that everybody wants contraception. We take it for granted that everybody is in favor of gay marriage. Everybody's in favor of gay sex. We took it for granted that, well, not everybody's in favor of abortion, but the Republicans, it was just a fundraising ploy. They weren't really trying to get rid of abortion. This is brilliant. You know, I don't like Nancy Pelosi, but this is a brilliant move to force the Republican hand on contraception, gay marriage, gay sex, and of course, abortion. Here's the frightening thing. We needed the courts in America to give us freedom 
to use contraception, freedom for an abortion. We needed the courts to give us freedom for gay marriage, freedom for interracial marriage, loving versus Virginia, and freedom uh, for gay sex. That was never in, enshrined in the federal laws. Why? I don't think that stuff could have could have passed for whatever reason. And now we're going to find that with a Democrat in the White House, the Democrats controlling the House and the Democrats barely controlling a, a Senate that is, you know, vulnerable to the filibuster, we're going to discover that in America, in America, we cannot pass these basic human rights. What is it? It's, you know, a lot of people will say it's our system, the Electoral College. They'll say it's New York only getting two senators, the same as Wyoming. I understand that. Uh, but these issues, contraception, abortion, gay marriage, gay sex, these should be slam dunks, even with the structural disadvantages we have. Uh, it, it's very disheartening. It's not going to get passed. They're, they're not going to codify, enshrine into our law the right to contraception, the right to an abortion or the right to gay marriage. It's not going to happen. The Republicans are going to veto or are going to filibuster these bills. Good politics on behalf of Nancy Pelosi. The, the, the new polling is showing that in a generic survey, the Democrats are keeping the House in a generic survey that doesn't factor in filibustering. And the Democrats are out fundraising the Republicans. So, you know, uh, if you're worried about the Democratic Party, uh, you know, this is smart politics. This is smart politics. Republican Congresswoman from Florida, Kat Kamak, uh, voted against uh, the contraception bill. Here's what she said. This bill, the Right to Deception Act, is looking to solve a problem that doesn't exist. But more than that, in seeking to solve a problem that doesn't exist, you want to spend more of our taxpayer money to grow the size and scope of government and to allow more abortions to occur and kill our children. Cool. Y'all are a real piece of work. Folks back home, they see right through this and they'll see through it in November. I urge opposition to this bill and I yield the remainder of my time. Yeah, there are structural disadvantages. Most people want contraception, but because of gerrymandering in Florida, you end up with a congresswoman like Kat Kamek. Uh, anyway, all of this is overwhelming because the deplorables seem to be winning. And who are the deplorables? The richest 1%, not the same deplorables Hillary was talking about. The real deplorables are the richest 1% who control our government. They control our government by manipulating the insane, like, you know, Congresswoman Kat Kamek. She's insane. They manipulate the undereducated, like Florida Congresswoman Kat Kamek. Uh, the sexually frustrated. Oh, I think that would be Kat Kamek. I don't think contraception is an issue for her. Okay, that 20 years ago, I could have said something like that, but now I can't. That, that would be wrong. Uh, they manipulate the gun-worshipping, superstitious buffoons who prefer religion, who choose hatred and discrimination over a functioning government that works for everyone. 
what the richest 1% doesn't want us to realize is only government can solve our problems. Let me repeat, only government can solve our problems, period. And what we are witnessing right now in America is the apotheosis of a 50-year war against government in an attempt to take over government. They demonize, these people, the 1%, demonized government, said it was evil, and while they were doing that, they took over the reins of power. The very government they call evil, they now own. So what we're feeling right now, this demoralization, all of this, the heat, the mass shootings, the threat to what's left of our republic, it's all because the richest 1% staged a slow motion coup d'etat and took over that evil government. The rich tell us government is the enemy, but they don't believe that. They are all for government. They can't exist. The rich cannot exist without government. For example, the Senate this week passed a bill that would provide $52 billion in subsidies to chip makers, to Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is getting $52 billion from the federal government. We won't get any ownership, right? We're, we're just going to give money to Intel, NVIDIA. We're just going to give them money and no ownership, no ownership, no stock ownership. Here's $52 billion. It's not even discussed. The idea of our giving these chip manufacturers, $52 billion and not getting any shares in the business, it's out of the question. That would be socialism. Socialism for us, not socialism. Just, you know, if you give them $52 billion and don't ask for anything in return, that's just socialism for corporate America and the wealthiest 1%. So there's no problem with that kind of socialism. Uh, the chip companies are getting $52 billion of our tax dollars. It passed in the Senate 64 to 34. So that means it has a, it has a filibuster-proof majority. It's bipartisan. The Republicans are on board because they claim, this is how they justify it, it's about national security. They're worried that the Defense Department uh, is purchasing semiconductor chips from, uh, from China. So it's dangerous. So 52, 54, 55 billion dollars uh, for Silicon Valley, for the chip makers. Plenty of money. Uh, and, and by the way, this isn't a bailout. It's not like Intel or Nvidium is needs help, like they're going out of business. Intel, Nvidium, uh, and they're getting like a huge chunk of this money. Uh, they're doing just fine. Uh, but the federal government is giving them $52 billion just to encourage them to keep their factories here in America. You know, there are other ways to encourage Intel to keep factories here in America through taxation by actually they're giving us, instead of our giving them $52 billion to stay in America, uh, we tax them if they don't stay in America. That's how normal rational societies operate. Meanwhile, scientists say a more contagious wave of COVID is hitting America and could end up uh, infecting 100 million of us. But the Senate 
can't seem to pass a $10 billion COVID relief bill that would provide for free testing, as well as making vaccines and therapeutics readily available, if not free, maybe affordable. So we have money for Intel and Nvidium, no money for Americans. Uh, so they go and get tested and uh, get vaccinated. No money for that. 60 billion in weapons for Ukraine, though, and counting. Ukraine's first lady, Elena Zelenska, addressed members of Congress this week. Unprecedented. Never before has the first lady of another country spoken before Congress. She spoke before members of Congress warning of a humanitarian disaster facing her country. Well, a humanitarian disaster. And what is her solution? Weapons. You know, it's the same identical humanitarian disaster facing Yemen, which has been caused by weapons, American weapons. But meanwhile, Joe Biden was off in Saudi Arabia last week making nice. No mention of Yemen. No concern about the the largest cholera epidemic on the planet caused by the Saudi Arabians in Yemen. No, just pump more oil. That's all he asked of the Saudi Arabians. And now there's a humanitarian disaster in Ukraine. Five, six million refugees. Ukraine not doing well. Putin doubling down in the south uh, is probably going to do to the separatist uh, territory what he did with Crimea and just declare it Russian. But the solution, more weapons. And the the first lady of Ukraine spoke before Congress and had their ear because she was asking for weapons. She wasn't asking for food or medicine. She was asking for weapons. When's the last time Reverend Barber from the Poor People's Campaign addressed Congress? We're giving weapons to Ukraine with no strings attached, no inspector general, no accountability. But here in America, you want food stamps? You want welfare? Well, you want welfare. Have you looked for work this week? Let me see your bank statements to make sure you're not ripping off our government. Money for the chip makers, 52 billion for Intel and Nvidium. Money for weapons, 60, 70 billion dollars for Ukraine. No money for COVID. No money for COVID here in the United States where they say 250,000 more Americans will die in the next two years. No money for our schools. Look, the government of the United States is not dysfunctional. It is working perfectly, just not for us. It works. If you're a chip maker, if you own stock, in in Nvidium or Intel, or if you own stock in the Carlyle Group, like David Rubenstein, it's working swell. This is the most efficient government in the history of civilization, if you're part of the richest 1%. For the past 50 years, the richest 1% have rebuilt government in their own image. Uh, now, not to belabor the point, 
But right before this big vote on the 52, $53, 50 bill, 52 to $53 billion bailout for Silicon Valley, for the trip manufacturers, our Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, Democrat, purchased as much as $5 million in NVIDIA stock. NVIDIA is a chip maker. They're going to be one of the biggest beneficiaries of the $52 billion bailout for chip makers. And she went ahead and took her cut. She bought $5 million in NVIDIA stock. She says she didn't buy the stock. Her husband did. And she says there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, nothing wrong with that. I would expect that from the Republicans, maybe. But from the Democrats who are supposed to speak for labor, for tax paying American citizens to protect us from corporate corruption, uh, I, I would expect our leaders in the Democratic Party not to have $5 million to play the stock market with. I, would, I expect people who speak for me not to have that kind of money. Go join the Republican Party. So government, government isn't in trouble. Government isn't going anywhere. Democracy is. Our republic is. Uh, you and I are, but government is doing just fine because it is controlled by Wall Street and corporate America and the richest families. Government is stronger than ever. But government is governing the people instead of the other way around. The people who control our government, the people who control our government don't live in America they have mega yachts, private jets, homes all over the world, and soon outer space. Paul Pelosi has two wineries in the Napa Valley that we know of. And that's not America. The police, private security protect him. They do not live in America. They, the Pelosi's, the Biden's, and their idiot children live in these bubbles of privilege. And they simply cannot imagine what it's like to lose your home to climate change or lose your home to eviction or lose the car you're sleeping in because the police were ordered by Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles to clear out the homeless and they seized the car you and your family were sleeping in because there are so many bench warrants associated with your car that it's now government property. They cannot imagine living that way. So let me make this crystal clear. There is no alternative to government. As Professor Mary Ann Cummings, particle physicist, and Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, Aurora, Illinois, she was elected to that position. Uh, Big Bernie supporter, Professor Marianne Cummings, will be joining us later. On the show, I think Monday, she said, we're going to have a government whether you like it or not. There's going to be a government. Right now, we don't like it, but we have a government. 
Stop buying into the corporate propaganda that government is dysfunctional. Government is working perfectly. The oil companies are posting record profits and it's earnings seasons right now on Wall Street. Pay attention. Pay attention to to the earnings. You know, inflation. They keep talking about, oh, their inflation is killing us. Corporate America's profit margins are doing just fine. The stock market was up, I think, 700 points yesterday. Uh, most of the companies reporting earnings are doing exceptionally well because the government, this dysfunctional government, works perfectly for the stock market. It works perfectly if you have five million dollars like Paul Pelosi to put into Navidium. The government works for the bankers, the landlords like the Pelosi's, their landlords. The government works for our richest one percent. Now, Wall Street won't stop talking about a recession that's right around the corner. They keep saying, kind of like, you know, remember how Biden was saying Putin's going to attack Ukraine? There's nothing we can do about it. There's not, And you thought, you know, it's almost as though Biden wants Putin to invade Ukraine, which he did because he could have stopped it. Uh, but he didn't. He wanted to get Putin stuck in a quagmire like Afghanistan or Vietnam. So he just kept saying, Putin's going to invade, no doubt about it. And sure enough, eventually Putin invaded. And right now, Wall Street keeps going, there's going to be a recession, no doubt about it. There's, going to be, there's a recession, it's just around the corner. Why? They play dumb, like it's inevitable that there's going to be a recession. They know there's going to be a recession because Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is trying to jumpstart a recession by hiking interest rates. They want a recession. The richest 1% want a recession because that will drive down the cost of labor. When you hike up interest rates, you raise borrowing costs, which means people can't buy homes because they can't borrow money. But if you have cash, like the richest 1%, you don't, what do you care about mortgage rates? The price of a home goes down. You have all this cash sitting around. What do you care what a mortgage costs if you have $200 million in cash? You want the, the you want home prices to go down. You're, Jerome Powell is doing the work of the richest 1% who are all sitting on cash right now. They all sold. We're in a bear market which means hedge fund managers, the richest 1% to invest, they pulled out of the stock market. This is a bear market. It's down 20%, which means the 1% have cash. You know, they sell their stock, right? Now they have cash. Jerome Powell raises interest rates. Nobody can afford to buy a house because they need a mortgage. But the people who don't need a mortgage, like Paul Pelosi, the people who have five million dollars sitting around like vultures, they sweep in and they buy all this property on the cheap. That's what Jerome Powell is doing by raising interest rates. And they they say that when Jerome Powell raises interest rates, 
he raises borrowing costs, which hits the consumer because it becomes, it costs too much to put things on your credit card. It costs, suddenly when Jerome Powell raises interest rates, our credit cards get too expensive. So I want to talk about credit cards for a second. How is it possible that it could, how is it possible, how could it possibly cost more to put something on my credit card? I don't see how that's possible. There is cheap money out there, or there was cheap money out there, but it wasn't for the consumers, not your credit card. The credit card companies lend money like the Gambino family, usurious interest rates. Rates, by the way, that our Christian evangelical friends should be talking about. This is something the religious right should be up in arms against. They should be going after the credit card companies because usurious interest rates are strictly prohibited by the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is anti-Judeo-Christian. Ezekiel, this is from Ezekiel. If he lends at interest and takes profit, shall he then live? No, he shall not live. Old Testament, he has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. That's Ezekiel. This is Deuteronomy. This is Old Testament. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. By brother, it means your, your fellow countrymen. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, your fellow countrymen. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest, right? Your credit card company makes you borrow money to pay off interest. That's a sin, according, making somebody do that, that's a sin, according to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says you may charge a foreigner interest, that means from another country, but you may not charge a fellow countryman interest. Leviticus, you shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. You're not allowed to sell food at above cost. Leviticus. Exodus. This is God talking. Old Testament God. I'll get to New Testament God. I'll get to Jesus in a second. Exodus. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not act like a moneylender to them, and you shall not exact interest from them. God is saying you can lend money, but you can't be a money lender. You can't collect interest. If you ever take your neighbor's coat as collateral for a loan, you shall return it to him immediately before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his only covering for his body. So how else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will know what you have done to him, for I, unlike you, am compassionate. This is some heavy shit from God to the credit card companies. Matthew, now we're talking Jesus. This is what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the 
the other, Jesus goes on to say, you cannot serve God and money. The credit card companies are godless. Uh, But somehow our Christian nationalists who rule over the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, uh, they have no problem with the moneylenders who have free reign in this country. The moneylenders have free reign in this country. You know, Giuliani got rid of the mafia in the 80s. And we just replaced the mafia with the banks. And I'm being serious about this. The banks lend money just like mobsters, exactly like mobsters. So, you know, with Jerome Powell over at the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, I simply do not see how his raising interest rates, I just don't see how the credit card companies could possibly raise my interest rates more than they already have. Uh, you know, for a couple of months, I talked about this last about two weeks ago, I found that I had a, an old credit card and I had left $700 on it and I forgot about it. By the time I realized that I left $700 on th- this credit card, uh, the debt pretty much doubled and then some. And we're not talking about years. We're talking about months that it doubled. I think the credit card debt they were charging me was something like 30% a year. And I looked into this. The debt is added on each month. So you're paying 30% interest on the interest plus fees. In other words, let's say you owe $700. They, is it called amortizing? I don't know. But they charge you interest every month. So they so if you owe $700, uh, the next month you owe something like $750, plus there's a $50 fee, so now you owe $800. And now you have to pay interest on the interest that was tacked on, plus you have to pay interest on the $50 fee that they tack on. So you no longer owe $700, you owe $800. And then each month they just keep tacking on interest and more fees, And within months, that $700 turns into $1,400. So I called Visa, and the the woman on the phone could not explain to me how it doubled within months. She could not do the math. I I made her, I kept her on the line, and, and... And she wanted to transfer me to a a supervisor. I said, no, I want to know what you know. You're supposed to be able to help me here. Do the math. Uh, And I kind of, you know, politely demanded that she do her job and explain the interest charges and the fees and how $700 becomes $1,500 in a matter of months. And I kept her on the phone for about an hour. I ended up liking her and we have an email we're going back and forth in email. Uh, she admitted over the phone during a conversation that we both knew Visa is recording, you know, to enhance customer service by making sure the customer service rep never spills the beans on what a racket, what a usurious racket the credit card industry is. So 
we both knew it was being taped, but she politely explained to me that over the phone that they really don't teach us how to calculate the interest for the customers and we don't really understand the fees. And then she contacted me. She knew my name. She looked me up and she contacted me through my website and we've been going back and forth anonymously. And she said to me that she is a first generation American who went to college. This is the only job she can get. She said Visa doesn't train their customer service people on how to calculate the fees and interest or the rates and the or the charges that they're discouraged from explaining to the customers why they owe what they owe. She said in an email to me when you when she, when you call her, uh, she is incapable of providing information on how to reduce your pe- your payments or your debt, because that's not what Visa wants. They don't want you to pay off your debt. She admitted that she doesn't understand the nomenclature, these terms like APR, that it's all too complicated for her. And then she said in another email, she's dealing with tons of single moms who are putting medical bills on their credit cards and they can't pay these medical bills back and the debt for these medical bills, you know, double every couple of months. And here's the thing. I looked into this. It's all perfectly legal because the government works fine. The government is not dysfunctional. It's working perfectly fine for the banks and the lenders. We even have a president from Delaware, which is the credit card capital of the world. The government is working just fine. You will not hear President Joe Biden talk about reining in, reining in credit cards. No way. Now, here's something that blew me away, and I had no idea. The federal government has absolutely no limits on interest rates a credit card company can charge. Zero. Zero. The federal government does not put a cap on the interest rates a credit card company can charge its customers. So whatever Jerome Powell is doing with interest rates, the credit card companies couldn't give a shit. They make their own rules because it's left to the individual states. It's up to the individual states to decide whether or not there's going to be a cap on interest rates. Uh, Now, usury laws are complicated on purpose because it's up to the states, you know, states, right? States rights, right? States rights. Some states place limits on how high the interest rates can be on borrowed money. But these laws mean nothing. They mean nothing. Most states have some kind of usury law, some kind of cap on interest rates. But I think they're called adhesion contracts. When you sign up for a credit card, there are terms of service that you never read, 
but you just click on them because you need the money, you need a credit card. So when you sign up for a credit card, when you click, when you agree on the terms of service, you sign away the bank's responsibility to obey those usury laws. When you sign up, again, you don't read the, ter- the TOS, the terms of service. You just click yes. And once you click yes, all usury laws no longer apply. Poof, they disappear. You also lose the right to sue the credit card company. It has to go into arbitration. And guess who picks the mediator? The credit card companies. Uh, so the government, the federal government, has no caps on what a credit card company, the federal government has no caps on what a credit card company can charge in terms of interest rates. They leave it to the states to outlaw loan sharks, but it's all performative. It has the appearance of local government looking out for the lender, but that's a lie. It's a lie. There is no law to prevent lenders from making the terms of the loan predicated on the borrower's promise, the borrower's promise to waive their right to these caps that rein in the cost of borrowing. There are no laws that say you can't issue a credit card with a terms of service uh, that uh, waves away usury laws. So the government makes it look like they're protecting borrowers. But when you agree to a credit card, you can't get that credit card unless you waive your rights to government protection. You have no protection when you get a credit card. There are laws on the books that appear to protect you. But in order to get those credit cards, you have to sign away your right to those laws. In South Dakota, there are pretty much no limits on how much interest a credit card company can charge you. Now, if you owe below $5,000 on your credit card in South Dakota, theoretically, in South Dakota, the credit card company is only allowed to charge you 12% a year. But you waived away that cap when you signed up for the credit card. And after $5,000, according to South Dakota law, there is absolutely no limit on what Visa can charge you in interest. No limit. No limit whatsoever. Uh, Now, we talk a lot about Wall Street, but the truth is most banks, most credit card lenders have moved their operations into states like South Dakota that have no usury laws. Look and see where your credit card has been issued. Mine come from South Dakota, where there are no usury laws. Robert Manning, author of Credit Card Nation, writes that because of states' rights, because there is no federal usury law, no federal caps on interest rates, a bank, a lender, can move their headquarters to a quote-unquote lender-friendly state like South Dakota, and export the interest rate of that state to any customer. So if you are borrowing from South Dakota, a bank in South Dakota, they can jack up 
the interest rates to whatever they want. It's why a $700 balance on my credit card within months became $1,500. Check your credit card. Find out what state it was issued from. I guarantee you it wasn't issued in the state of New York. Something like 50% of credit card companies issue their cards from states that are not where their headquarters are located, and they play fast and loose with the laws where they say, well, our company is headquartered here on Wall Street, but our credit card division is headquartered in South Dakota. Apple, for example, claims its headquarters are in Cupertino, California, but all its profits are collected in Reno, Nevada because of states' rights, uh, because the federal government doesn't issue protections. Apple pays no income tax in California. It is subject to the income tax in the state of Nevada, which is zero. So Apple pays zero state income tax. So Cupertino, California, where Apple is headquartered, supposedly, Cupertino builds roads and schools for Apple and their, their children, the employees' children. But Apple pays zero in taxes to the city of Cupertino or to the state of California. And more importantly, there are no usury laws in Nevada. Why would there be? It's the gaming capital of the world, right? So Apple is sitting on $200 billion in cash, which is why they're now putting it on the street, you know, getting into the loan sharking business. When you agree to the terms of service for Apple Pay, you sign away any protection from usurious interest rates. And that card is issued, I'm pretty sure, out of Nevada. So there aren't any any caps that Apple has to worry about. They can charge you whatever they want. So once again, you tell me whether government is working. Government is working just fine. It's just not working for you. As I talked about on Monday's show, neoliberalism is not about laissez-faire capitalism. It is not about getting government out of the way. We were led to believe that that's what corporate America once, right? When Reagan began this 50-year war against government, he said government isn't the solution, government is the problem. But he didn't mean that. He just said that. Conservatives like Ronald Reagan, neoliberals like Bill Clinton, who echoed Ronald Reagan when during his inauguration, Bill Clinton, neoliberal Bill Clinton, said the age of big government is over. Uh, he didn't mean that. What he meant is government is over for you folk. It's going to get bigger for big business. And neoliberals always understood that government is the solution, right? Ronald Reagan famously said government isn't the solution. Government is the problem. Neoliberals and Reagan understood that government is the solution. The problem is democracy. Democracy is the problem. That's what we have to remember. And we lose sight of this all the time. The problem 
for neoliberals is democracy, not government. Government isn't going anywhere. Democracy is. We're going to lose our democracy. We don't even, we're going to lose our republic. Democracy is the problem. As Professor Harvey J.K. has said on this show countless times, it was the Trilateral Commission in the 70s that set the stage for this war against democracy in favor of the richest 1%. It was the Trilateral Commission in the 70s. It was the Powell Memo. It was the Chamber of Commerce and the richest families in America who witnessed in the 60s and early 70s the rise of consumerism and environmentalism. And they said, we have a problem of too much democracy because people were having a say. And they said, hey, we need clean air, clean water. And that is not what the richest people in America want because it's too expensive. General Electric had, a, after the Clean Water Act of 72, uh, General Electric had to spend 20 years fighting the government uh, because they didn't want to clean up the forever chemicals, the PCBs out of the Hudson River. Uh, too much democracy. If you ask people to vote, they're going to say, yeah, I'd rather have clean water than higher profits for GE. So they launched a war against uh, democracy, not government. They invaded and then took over our government. And now they run it. Now they own it. And it's working just fine. Government is not dysfunctional. Government is working. We lost the war for government. The richest 1% has won it. Labor has been decimated in the past 40 years. The rich don't pay taxes. They collect money from the government. They take from the government. They don't give to the government. The chip manufacturers are going to get $52 billion. The military industrial complex is getting $60 billion for Ukraine. You cannot pass a single piece of legislation in Washington unless it benefits the wealthiest 1%. We've talked about this study that was conducted about 10 years ago where they went through all the legislation that was successful coming out of Washington going back about 20 years. And they looked to see whether or not the richest 1% supported that legislation. The study says, I think it came out of Princeton or maybe it was Rutgers. I don't know, but it, I think it came out of New Jersey. The study concluded we're an oligarchy that Congress will not pass any laws unless the oligarchs, the richest 1%, will approve them. You know, the infrastructure bill, bipartisan, that gets passed because the oligarchs approve it. The social safety net bill, never going to get passed, right? That bipartisan infrastructure bill got passed last year, sailed through Congress. Biden signed it immediately because it was a love letter to oil, gas, the internet companies. But Bernie's social safety net bill, Build Back Better, dead, dead, dead. Because that would put $2 trillion 
or more into the pockets of ordinary Americans by increasing the social safety net, making housing affordable, making education affordable, making health care affordable, prescription drugs, prescription drugs. I, because I wasn't breastfed as a child, uh, my pediatrician gave me a gave me prescription drugs. I don't want to get into it. Prescription drugs. Ordinary Americans, they don't get that $2 trillion. Bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? Any money that's going to corporations or the richest 1% have at it. Because our government has been taken over by the oligarchs, by the richest 1%. And this government, which works perfectly fine, is... Its mission is to uh, create precarity, not relieve it. This government wants us financially uh, in in a state of financial precarity because labor is the enemy. The government has been waging a war against the working class since Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers. And at least the Republicans have the decency to pretty much admit it. You know, when they got rid of the COVID supplemental last year, I think it was Lindsey Graham who said, you know, if we keep paying Americans $600 a week, how are we going to get them to go back to work? We have to pretty much said we have to starve them out. We have to make them so hungry and terrified they'll work for slave wages. This government is run by the wealthy. They have taken it over. And the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6 knew that in their clogged hearts, they knew that. They couldn't articulate it because they've been brainwashed. They're simpletons who have been brainwashed into believing the, the source of all their immiseration, you know, it's the Mexicans, the Guatemalans, the blacks, the Jews, the lesbians, the Jews, the Arabs, the Hispanics, the Jews who are causing their financial precarity. That's that's we all know this. That's they're brainwashed. Well. The most dangerous people in America are the ones who can reach out to the people who sympathize with the insurrectionists. The most dangerous people in America, the most dangerous politicians in America are the ones who can talk to people who sympathize with the insurrectionists and say, put down your bear spray, put down your weapons. I understand your anger. Now look, I can't make you like Arabs, Jews, the LGBTQ. I can't make you like black people or women. But if you work with me, if you work with me, I can give you a livable wage, a semblance of job security, union protections, clean water, clean air, a financial future, a savings account, an education, a good education for your children that's free. And I can give you roads that don't collapse, bridges that don't collapse. 
I can guarantee you vacation time and vacations that will be affordable because you'll be getting more money. Okay? Now, I'm Jewish. I'm black. I'm gay. I'm a woman. And you know what? You can still hate me. You can still hate me. But come with me. Come with me on this. Come with me on this. Because I'm going to place a bet that if you, if you live in a community where you're not bombarded by the worry, the constant worry for your family's economic and physical security, I'm betting that you'll still hate me, but you won't act on your hatred for me. I'm going to bet that if your kids are going to a good school, I'm going to bet that if you're not saddled with debt, if you're not worried about the landlord evicting you or the bank kicking you off your land, I'm going to bet that the way I have sex isn't going to bother you all that much. I'm going to bet that you won't approve of it, but you're going to be too busy playing with your toys and your children to worry about which God I pray to. Because when people feel horrible, and that's the way the American people feel, they've been feeling this way longer than most of you realize, longer than most of my listeners realize. When people feel horrible, they have two choices. They can become paralyzed or they can lash out. And this is a problem that uh, our government uh, on both sides of the aisle is confronting. We have Americans who are angry and they know whose fault it is. They know whose fault it is. It is the fault of the people who sent all these charlatans to Washington, D.C. And the American people all know that. It is like uh, somebody has a big booger in their nose. The government has the big booger in their nose, and we're all pretending we don't see it. It's like you get into an elevator at a fancy hotel and somebody farts, and you just pretend you don't smell it. But everybody's thinking the same thing. This government stinks. If you're on the left, if you're on the right or on the middle, you know this government stinks because it works only for the richest 1% and they stink. So I don't approve, obviously, of the people who took the Capitol on January 6th or tried to take the Capitol. Uh, They have every right to be angry. They don't have a right. Nobody has a right to resort to violence. And they have no right to take it out on our government uh, unless it's through peaceful protest, through lobbying, and of course, voting and donating to the right candidates. The insurrectionists were angry. They have an enemy. They just don't know who it is. It's the weapons manufacturers, it's the chip makers, it's the banks, it's the inherited wealth, it's the people who want this government, who make this government 
literally hand them money at the expense of ordinary Americans. This is what's going on, right? Intel, which is doing perfectly fine, is going to get billions of dollars in a handout from the government. Uh, and they don't pay taxes. These corporations, the rich, they do not pay taxes. They do not create jobs. And if they do, by accident, create a job, it pays shit and it's soul crushing. You know, uh, there's a myth in America of the entrepreneur. They love to uh, tell us that we're a nation of entrepreneurs. The truth is you cannot be an entrepreneur in this country without the mafia being your partner. And even when the mafia becomes your partner, you still fail. You just owe the mafia more money. And by mafia, I mean the money lenders, the banks. Uh, the banks uh, own your home. They own your business. They own your education. You cannot start a business in America without the banks getting a taste. And their taste is guaranteed. Their taste, depending on what kind of interest rates they're charging you, if it's a small business loan or a credit card loan, it all depends. They can be getting anywhere between 8 to 30% of your business. Depends on what kind of loan you got. These are mobsters. The Gambino family can't charge this much. So many of the insurrectionists on January 6th were people who bought into the lie that anyone can make it in America. They fan Some of them fancied themselves entrepreneurs who believed Donald Trump's bullshit. But they were broke. They were in debt. But they identified with the richest 1% because they were brainwashed into thinking anyone can make it here in America. Right? Their anger comes from the fact that they couldn't articulate the realization that they, they are being robbed by the banks, that Trump University is a ripoff. There's no such thing as an entrepreneur because the system is rigged. Ashley Babbitt was killed by Capitol Police officers on January 6th. She voted for Barack Obama. She also served in our military. She also bought into the American dream. And so she started her own pool business. But in order to start her own pool business and become an entrepreneur, you know, she was in the military. She got tired of taking orders. She wanted to be her own person. That's the promise that this country makes. So she started her own pool business, but she needed a partner. She needed the mafia to help her out. She took out a loan for her pool business. On July 1st, 2019, Ashley Babbitt was taken to court by the bank that lent her the money. And a judge ordered her to pay the bank $71,000. That's in 
you know, what she borrowed and then interest on what she borrowed and fees. And now she owes the bank $71,000. And her small business, her pool business, failed. In fewer than two years, Ashley Babbitt went from an Obama supporter to a Trump supporter to a QAnon follower. And by January 6th, she was shot to death storming the Capitol. Fewer than two years that happens. Uh, On July 1st, 2019, right? That's when the bank ordered her to pay back the $71,000 loan on her failed pool business. She was a victim of the American lie. And she couldn't square it in her head, like so many of these insurrections. They couldn't bring it to themselves, admit to themselves that uh, they had been lied to. Uh, and they, re- they identify with the entrepreneurial class. Even though you can't be an entrepreneur in America without racking up massive debt, Americans, it, it, it's conceding defeat if you stop identifying with the entrepreneurial class, even though you failed, you failed. Your your pool business failed. Your seventy one thousand dollars in debt just to the bank on the business. God knows what the other credit card debt was. But if I identify with the working class, then I'm a loser. Then I'm just a loser. So they they fight. They they worship Donald Trump even more. Because the more I throw myself towards Donald Trump, the more of a winner I am. Uh, Nobody tells the American people that you can't be an entrepreneur in America without racking up massive debt and going broke. 20% of all small businesses in America fail within the first year. That's according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. You have a one out of five chance of your business going under the first year. After five years of running your business, 50% of new businesses fail after five years. Looking at a 15-year horizon, one quarter of small businesses succeed after 15 years. If you're going to go into your own business, you're going to fail. Only one quarter of small businesses succeed after 15 years. Uh, If you're lucky as an entrepreneur, you paid yourself a salary, but you're going to rack up debt. You're going to declare bankruptcy. You're going to fail. You're going to take out more loans. You're going to borrow against whatever you have left. And you're going to be in debt for the rest of your life. But you're going to identify with the ruling class, you know, I'm going to identify with Donald Trump. That way, I'm not a loser. A lot of uh, college graduates who end up broke, uh, they can't break their their love for arugula and fine wine. They still identify with that great college they paid for. But they're broke. But they won't identify with the working class because then that's conceding defeat. The same way with the insurrectionists. I'm going to identify with Donald Trump. Otherwise, I'm conceding defeat. I'm just a poor person who racked up massive debt. And Trump is perfect to identify with because he has spent his entire adult life in debt. 
unlike Ashley Babbitt, he made it work. But the people who stormed the Capitol, like that real estate agent who bragged about flying on a private plane to get to the insurrection, check her bank balances, check her credit scores, see how much money they actually have. People who are solvent didn't storm the Capitol because they had too much capital to lose. For example, Steve Bannon is worth tens of millions of dollars. Goldman Sachs, believe it or not, he has Seinfeld money. I'm not making that up. Somehow, Steve Bannon has Seinfeld money. He invested in Seinfeld somehow. Uh, he didn't storm the Capitol. Uh, he was meeting at the Willard Hotel uh, the night before. Willard Hotel right next door to the White House. He was meeting with Giuliani. Uh, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff for Trump, phoned in on that meeting. They were planning some kind of insurrection, but they didn't dirty their hands by uh, marching with the insurrectionists. Uh, government is working. Government is working. It's not dysfunctional. It's working just fine for the rich. It's working just fine for the rich. Uh, well, tonight we're going to uh, stop the live stream and in the Zoom room in our virtual studio audience, we're going to watch the January six hearings there. We were told this was going to be the last one, but th it's going to continue. And we will talk about the ugliness of this insurrection and how horrible Trump is. And uh, it's all true. It's all true. And I still cling to the notion that if Trump gets locked up, we'll all be saved. And because I'm a patriotic fool, I'll be able to tell my kids, you see, the system worked. Uh, yeah, you know, my side, I'm a Democrat. I know that's odious to most people. Uh, if we lock up Trump, we will have been saved by a crazed Republican Party that wants to turn America into some sort of Neolithic totem worshiping tribe of murderous cavemen. And I believe that really is their agenda. I really do. Uh, what the Democrats, what my party is offering is the it could be a lot worse platform. That's what the Democrats have to offer. It could be a lot worse. That's what an abusive father tells his wife and kids. It could be a lot worse. Now get the pot roast and shut your mouth. It could be a lot worse. Go ahead, leave, call the police, but trust me, it'll be a lot worse. Without me, it'll be a lot worse. And it's all, it's all bullshit, but there are real world consequences to this kabuki theater of distraction bullshit. There are real world consequences uh, to this play acting, which is, you know, they're ignoring the real problems in America. And there are real world consequences to ignoring the real world problems in America. One of the consequences is people will storm the Capitol and try to hang Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. Those are real world consequences to ignoring real world problems. 
And by the way, if you if you notice, the insurrectionists were bipartisan in their anger. They wanted to hang Pelosi and Mike Pence. Bipartisan. I'm not making a joke. I'm telling you the most dangerous politician in America is the one who can get the American people to stop seeing Republican or Democrat and reduce it down to one thing, rich or poor, rich or poor. I'm going to watch this tonight. It's going to be fascinating. I'm rooting for the committee. I'm rooting against Trump. I really am. But uh, it's interesting to see what Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden's priorities are. For example, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's awfully hot. And Biden and Pelosi say they really care about climate change. Where is the primetime select committee? Where's a select committee on primetime looking into how the oil companies knew they were destroying the planet as far back as the 1950s and covered up the evidence? Where's that select committee on prime time? Where's the primetime select committee looking into why half, half, this country can't come up with $1,000 for a medical emergency. Look, I'm furious about what happened on January 6. It was a failed coup. Unlike the December 12, 2000 coup that succeeded when the Supreme Court gave the presidency to George W. Bush and the vice presidency to Congresswoman Cheney's father. That was an elegant coup where the Supreme Court simply stopped the counting and declared George Bush the winner, even though he lost the popular vote. And had all the votes in Florida been counted, he would have lost Florida and the Electoral College. But the Supreme Court didn't want all the votes counted. It was just easier to declare George W. Bush the winner. That's your old school coup, clean. That's how good Republicans seize power. They do it through the legal system. They don't smear feces all over Statuary Hall. They smear it all over the American people by going off and launching a legal invasion of Iraq and turning our country over to the oil companies, which is what Congresswoman Cheney's father did. <coughs> Mass shootings. Record heat waves, food shortages here in America, inflation, baby formula shortages, COVID, debt, more debt, famine. Here is the dirty, dark secret. Here is the dirty, dark secret to keep in mind watching the hearings tonight. You and I have more in common with the people who stormed the Capitol than the ones asking the questions. You and I have more in common with the people who stormed the Capitol than the people asking the questions tonight. Again, the people who stormed the Capitol are the worst of the worst. But here's what they got right. They, they understand that government is important. 
the people who understood, uh, the people who stormed the Capitol understand that government is the solution. You have to take it over. You can't ignore government. That's what the insurrectionists understood. Again, they should all be locked up, but you know what they got right? They understood you don't ignore your government. They understood the power of the government. What the insurrectionists got right is if you want to make change, you have to take hold of our government. Now, you don't do it using violence. You do it by voting and running for office and getting involved. Uh, something that we will talk about uh, as the evening wears on. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience for the watch party, we're going to watch the January 6th hearings tonight at 8 o'clock together. Go to my website, hit pay-per-view. It won't cost you anything. We, we call it pay-per-view. And it'll take you right into our Zoom room where you can meet our virtual studio audience, watch the hearings with us, talk about it in the chat room. And then after the hearings, we're going to resume the show and take take your calls and have a wrap up with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, the professors and Mary Ann, uh, Professor Mary Ann Cummings, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Ann Lee and Alan Minsky, the executive director of uh, Progressive Democrats of America. So go to my website and join us in the virtual studio audience. And while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every every Friday. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, Professor Ben Burgess. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. All I really need is a second job or a third. Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA who make more in a second than I do in a day. I'm on my way. Yes, I am. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Oh, 
Bill Crystal man. I mean, the architects of a catastrophe that have cost this country trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, there should be accountability. We should not, if there are no regrets for the failed assumptions that have so grievously wounded this nation, I don't know what happened to our politics and media accountability, but we need it, Bill, because this country should not go back to war. We don't need armchair warriors. And if you feel so strongly, you should, with all due respect, enlist in the Iraqi army. That's a very cute line. Katrina. No, but no, people, but it's real. A million, a look, million look Iraq, at the displaced. Thousands million of people being killed. Can I just make a point? A million Iraqis have been displaced. You yes. read that story, humanitarian aid for what we have done to that country is a crime. We have done and to that should. country. on hysteria in the greater Bay Area. We heard about it on CNN.com. I guess they're calling it a swine bomb. We've been infested by feral hogs. They messed up my lawn and they ate my dogs. They're taking over and they're out of control. We're gonna organize a swine we got a swine bomb We're doing the swine bomb boogie These hogs are smelly and they make nasty sounds Some of them weigh close to 800 pounds Now you tell me if you think I'm mistaken Sounds like an awful lot of bacon. These critters are mean, they can tear into you. Here's what they say you're supposed to do get on your car or climb up a tree. Cause pigs can't climb, at least that's what they tell me. We're in a swine bomb. Pigs can't climb. Doing the swine bomb boogie. Pigs can't Folks are getting guns and shooting them on sight. I doubt if Peter thinks that's all right. All my life I've been for gun control. Now they done put me on swine patrol. Pigs can't climb and white men can't jump. All we can do is a bumpity bump. Can we chill these pigs out with some smooth and metal jazz? Round them all up and send them to Alcatraz. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. Pigs can't climb. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. Pigs can't climb. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. Pigs can't climb. We got a swine bomb. Pigs can't climb. We got swine. 
cats all over the place. We're doing a swine ball boogie. Pigs can't climb. I don't know what we're gonna do. If I knew, I would tell you. Hello? Oh, Ben is here. Okay. I see. All right. Yeah, I've been here for about five minutes. This is the music going. I wasn't sure what this cut is. All right. Let me get let me get my arm to land. Okay, so are you? We're doing you. Uh, Professor Ben Burgess is joining us, but I think it's via audio, correct? Uh, yeah, I'm in a car right now, so this is over the phone. Okay, where are you heading to? Uh, well, I'm going to spend the night in Kentucky, but I'm going up to Michigan to visit my family. Why are you? Uh, why are you heading up to? Everything okay? Yeah, yeah, every, everything's fine. Okay, let me just adjust so, the. Just, uh, yep. All right, let me just adjust the. Okay. Joining us is Professor Ben Burgess. He is the author of Give Them an Argument, as well as several other books, host of Give Them an Argument. And my one sheet has not arrived, Dan. So I'm flying by. We're a little disorganized today. So. Uh, no worries. What, what would you like to talk <laughs> about? What's on your mind? Are you excited about the January 6th hearings? Um, no, I mean, I'd be excited. I mean, I'd be excited if Trump was prosecuted. Like, that would excite me. But I'm not particularly excited just about having hearings about everything that happened. Uh, and I'm not wildly optimistic about this being an effective uh thing, right, to kind of get voters to, to pay attention to this. Um, you know, although you also asked me what was on my mind, and yes. to be honest, you know, most of what I've spent thinking about for the last couple of days has been Michael Brooks, because that was the anniversary yes. yesterday. So, yes. Uh, yes. Yes. It was that. Uh, hang on for one second. Yeah. Uh, yes. Michael... I hit the wrong button. Uh, yes, it's been, I cannot believe it's been two years since Michael Brooks uh, died unexpectedly. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how did you meet Michael? How, how did I meet him? Yeah. Where did you meet him? Uh, I met him in Idaho at a conference. Um, so, this is, uh, you know, it's a story some people probably heard me say before, so I'll, I'll just do it quickly. But I had, uh, there was, back then, uh, this was kind of at the height of the Jordan Peterson phenomenon in, in 2018, and a little while beforehand, uh, Michael and my mutual friend and editor, Doug Lane, who acquired and edited both of our books for, for zero books, uh, had been running the Zero Books podcast, and he'd had uh, Jordan Peterson booked as a guest, and then uh, and then Peterson, or perhaps somebody works for him, I don't know, realized like must have Googled Doug and realized it wasn't going to be a friendly interview, and so they they uh, they backed out, and then uh, very shortly after that, uh, Peterson was on. Yeah. 
You say, can you hear me? Hello? Well, we were talking with Professor Ben Burgess. Uh, ben Burgess has said that if you want an introduction to Michael Brooks, you should go on YouTube and watch his lecture at Lafayette College. And uh, that's the if you if you don't know who Michael Brooks is, I assume most of my listeners do know who Michael Brooks is. Uh, but if you don't watch him on YouTube, his lecture at uh, Lafayette College. That's a, a great introduction. All right. We're having technical problems, which we will not have during our watch party, Dan, in the newsroom. We're, I, know, I do know how we can pull this off. We're going to be able to watch the January 6 hearings and then talk about it after. Uh, but, but we have lost uh, uh, Professor Ben Burgess. Uh, do we have a what do we have in terms of a quiz? Oh, quiz master. We don't have a quiz tonight. We don't have a quiz tonight. <laughs> How about that? We don't. We've lost <laughs> Professor Ben Burgess. We don't have a one sheet. Did you get a one sheet? I got it and I just forwarded it could to your you, email and I texted it to you. If you could text it to me. I did both. Okay. As yeah. soon as you said it within right. one minute. Yeah. Uh, so you should have it. This is. And you also just said that uh, you could pull it off. So I'm assuming. I, I just might. I, I just <laughs> might pull it off. Coming up. Oh. Coming up at seven, the Hershenfelds. And then at 7.30, Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast. And then at 8 o'clock, our viewing party. We watched the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. And then the show, uh, the live stream resumes right after the hearings are finished. And we will discuss it. That's all coming up. Uh, I know we have a lot of listeners in... Uh, in our chat room, if you want to talk about Michael Brooks, raise your hand. And Professor Ben just showed back up. He must have lost connection for a moment. Yeah, I, I just, I, you know what, Professor Ben, are you there? Uh, I am comedian, Dave. What's up? Okay, so you say his lecture at Lafayette College is the best entry into the thinking of, of Michael Brooks, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, well. I think it's a really good introduction to him because he lays a lot of things out for an audience not necessarily familiar with him. He talks about his uh, his life a little bit. He talks about some of his big influences, like Adolf Reed. He talks about his book, and it's all very succinct. Right. Uh, okay. Let's talk about marijuana. You've been writing about marijuana over at the Daily Beast. What was your your piece about marijuana and Joe Biden about it? Is he smoking any? I hope. I, I think he may have, because uh, when he was running for president, he, uh, he said that uh, when he was president, he would deschedule cannabis and pardon everybody serving federal prison sentences for nonviolent weed offenses, and also expunge the criminal records. Hazard reported ahead on I-75 and in a quarter mile. And He's still on the fast Your wife does not. Will you tell that woman? Records. Hang on for one second. I am so sick of your wife interrupting this show 
and telling you how to drive. When is she going to stop? Yeah. Is that your wife? I know. I know. Uh, but she's still. Oh, yeah, clearly. I mean, she sounds so confident. You know. uh, that's, how she, that's how she talks to me, too. They, you know, hazard reported ahead. But, yeah, no, I, I think it's entirely possible that uh, Biden has been partaking because he, he promised that he would do all that stuff. And then I could only surmise that he must have gotten high and forgotten. <laughs> he was probably using some of Hunter's stash, which I think uh, I think there was some stuff in the pipe that wasn't pot, quite frankly. Hey, what happens? I want to get back to marijuana in a second. There is a report coming out of CNN that the Justice Department is ready to criminally charge Hunter Biden. Uh, Then the Republicans win the House, although that's not certain. It's just going to be 24 hours of round the clock impeachment, right? And it's going to be hard. I would, I would think so. It's going to be hard for people like you and me who you voted for Biden, right? I did. And I did, too. And I'm hoping the Democrats keep the House and the Senate. But it's going to be really hard to do what we did for Hillary and Obama and make excuses for them this time around, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know who this we is who made excuses for those people. But yeah, look, I think that uh, uh, I agree. I mean, the Republicans probably are going to go hard on these like petty scandals. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to play out for them. Uh, I mean, I I don't think this is very eccentric. I would say for all the things that I hate about Joe Biden, that I definitely had to you know, hold my to think about the nation or to, to get myself to vote for him in my swing state. But uh, for all the things I hate about Joe Biden, you know, his relationship with Hunter is actually something that kind of humanizes him for me. You know, that the, that's, uh, you know, like he has this kid who had a, you know, has probably uh, these severe addictions and you know, seem to be trying to do his best to be there for him and be a loving father. I mean, like, I think I expect that right about now, there are a lot of voters who could identify with that. I mean, like, that seems like, you know, the fact that he kind of like, you know, well, hang on for one second, hang on for one second, hang on for one second. If you have a son who is as deeply troubled as Hunter Biden is, you cannot say yeah. to him, even though he's pushing 50 or what, I don't know how old Hunter is. You cannot say to Hunter Biden, I am there for you. I'm your father. I'm there for you 100 percent. But I'm also going to be the most powerful leader on the planet and run the executive branch. But I will be there for you when I'm not president. of the United. You can't you can't be president of the United States and a good father at the same time. It's impossible. You're going to shortchange somebody. In Biden's case, he's shortchanged both. We get a shitty president, and he's a lousy father. I don't think you run. I don't think you run for president. You don't run for president if Hunter Biden's your son, not because of the scandal. Just uh, maybe spend time with your grandkids and shore up the family. 
Maybe that's a little important, especially when you're pushing 80. Maybe you can put your ambition aside and take care of your family. Well, I certainly wish that I certainly wish that Joe Biden had uh, had done that. You know, since uh, for one thing, in an immediate sense, uh, if if he had done that, uh, who knows what would have happened in the twenty twenty primaries? I mean, I think that uh, you know, I, I hear from Bernie to uh, to beat Mayor Pete uh, if he was the main centrist, but um, and also because yeah, I mean, Joe Biden has has been. I mean, I think that, like, again, whatever you think that he should or shouldn't be doing with, you know, with Hunter or other people in the family, like, uh, you know, he also seems to be not entirely there. I mean, I, like, superficially at least, right? I mean, there keep being these clips where he'll he'll try to shake hands with nobody, yeah. right? Like, like he'll he'll be like turning to empty space with his hand up. So, yeah, and I, for all sorts of reasons, I wish he weren't president right now. I think the fact that he is means that, um, you know, means that it's very, very likely that, you know, Trump or I guess maybe Ron DeSantis, who wouldn't be better, right, is going to uh, is going to be elected in uh, in 2024, you know, because uh, because Biden has. Uh, has screwed it all up to like an almost unbelievable degree, right? Like, and some of that has been because of factors that are outside of his control, you know, mansion and all that stuff. We could argue about what he could have tried to do to, to exert more pressure on him, but like some of that stuff is entirely within his control. And it's a small thing in a certain, you know, maybe compared to some other issues, but I think that, um, the broken promises on uh, marijuana uh, actually are kind of an amazing indicator of that. Well, what, what is the American people? Where do the American people? How popular is marijuana reform in America? I would think it's incredibly popular. It's super popular. There's uh, like there's some of the uh, the polls from like Pew and Gallup. Uh, a slight majority of Republicans are in favor of it an overwhelming majority of Democrats and independents are in favor of it. I think overall among Americans as a whole, it's, it's in the high 60s, you know, for not just for what Biden said he would do, but for going further than what Biden said he'd do and doing full-scale federal recreational legalization, right? Those are the numbers for that. So, yeah, I think it would be wildly popular. So it's an easy win. Significant it, it, base. It's an easy win. And exactly, yeah. And it would actually pull a lot of, uh, you know, I could see Joe Rogan and his listeners uh, deciding to vote for Biden just on that alone. It would excite. It would be. A, it's an easy win. It's something that he promised he would do. That would be incredibly popular if he did, and also. Best of all, it's something that is a hundred percent within his control, right? That there's no, you don't have to consult the parliamentarian. You don't have to, you don't have to get Mansion and Cinema on board. There's none of that because this is all stuff you could just do within the executive branch. You know that the um, the law doesn't dictate where the DEA, you know, like which schedule the DEA puts. Um, uh, marijuana on and the Controlled Substances Act. Right now, it's on the you know the one you know Schedule One for the most uh, 
for the most dangerous drugs with no medical application, which is nonsensical on its face. Uh, there's nobody, as far as I know, denies that the president has the legal power to pardon anybody who feels yeah. like pardoning, you know, who's, in, who's serving time in federal prison. So the fact, and like, this is something, like there's an ad uh, I went to in the piece that Biden did on October 27th, 2020, where he reiterates all of his promises. So this is like a week before uh, everybody voted. Right. And, or actually, if you remember the 2020 elections, all a lot of people have voted, but a week before anybody who voted in person voted. And it's, um, and so why did he do that? Right. And they like, he knew this was really popular. So I can understand some of the other instances in which Biden has not done things that he said he would do that are really popular right. uh, and that he could have done because in some of the other cases, like like the obvious example for me is raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, right? He said yeah. he would do that. Uh, the, uh, you know, I mean, that was part of his campaign platform. Uh, it's very popular. It's not as popular as weed legalization, but it's very popular. And, um, and they totally could have done that, right? Democrats had the votes for that. The only reason it didn't happen is because the parliamentarians said that, uh, you know, there weren't significant enough budgetary effects to do it within reconciliation. But I mean, that's a low level staffer who issues non-binding opinions. They could have just ignored her or fired her. Um, so that's like a case that like hits all three of those, right? It'd be within the Democrat power to do it. It's popular. They said they would do it. But I understand why they didn't do that. Right? They didn't do that because it's, uh, you know, because it's bad for the profits of corporate America. Yeah. Like, you know, working class people make more money. Yeah. Uh, well, let's so, talk about it. You know, I want to get. I can understand we have, their we perspective have... why, why, why they didn't do it. I was, I was just, I was going to say, really, what makes the weed thing inexplicable? Because it doesn't even have that, right? This would actually be great for business, right? Because right. uh, uh, you know, it would, be, it would be good for the economy in the cynical pro-business sense of good for the economy because, uh, you know, each shops could finally take credit card payments, you know, like it would actually, um, it would actually be good from that perspective, right? Like there's, there's no, like there's no argument against it, you know, except for, I don't know, that's bad or whatever. Although if that's what, if, if that's the case, right, if it's just the Joe Biden at heart right. is just too much of a drug warrior to do it, then why did he say he was going to do it, right? Like he said he was going to do right. it because he knew it was good politics to be even better politics to do it now. So honestly, most of the time that Biden does stuff I hate, I feel like I understand it. In this case, I have no clue why he hasn't done this. Let's talk about another piece you had over at the Daily Beast, which I really loved. You, It's entitled, it came out about a month ago, Bernie Sanders' Democratic Socialist Successors Are More Woke than progressive. You saw Bernie's debate against Lindsey O. Graham on Fox News. And, <laughs> and, you know, Fox News can't wait to talk about pronouns and, and uh, transgender bathroom issues. You say Bernie stayed on me message and just talked about Healthcare, wages, retirement savings, and the billionaire class. The woke, you know, I'm all f for wokeness, but I agree with what you wrote over yeah. at the Daily Beast that if you want to win over 
the insurrectionists. Let's be honest. If you're on Fox News uh, and you're, you're, you're playing to the insurrectionists, talk about health care, wages, retirement savings, inflation and the billionaire class, and you will hive off some of these people. Why? Why don't the progressives in Congress understand that? Woke is important, but you're you're not going to get any more voters being woke. You're actually going to push them away. Yeah, so I should say uh, I didn't write the title and I'm not actually 100 percent sure what more woke than progressive means. Uh, but well, um, I do. To me, a progressive you know, to me a progressive uh, identifies the importance of uh, abortion, contraception, gay marriage, gay sex, interracial marriage, all the things that the Supreme Court is putting on the chopping block. Pronouns, yeah, yeah. It, it, yep. and that is important. But if you want to win. If you want to win elections, you talk about inflation, the billionaire class, retirement savings, health care and wages. It's the economy, stupid. That's how you win. And, you know, like yeah, you no, said, I, I, I love AOC, but, but she's got to stay on message. She she already has the woke vote. It's the construction workers she needs. Yeah, I think that's I think that's basically right. I mean, I think that uh, one of the best things about Bernie as a political communicator is just how good he is about staying on message. And I was going to say, on the woke thing, if if woke just means like has socially progressive positions on what the law should be, then I agree that's important. Right? If if it means a certain kind of style of rhetoric or shaming people or whatever. And I think it can be counterproductive, but I think that the what I, I really like about Bernie as a political communicator, and I think a lot of the other congressional progressives are not as good at, frankly, is that, uh, is that he, he focuses on the issues that the right least wants to talk about because they know their positions are incredibly unpopular, right? Mm-hmm. That they, uh, all of those issues that you just mentioned that, uh, I mean, in some ways, I would, I would argue all of like Republican politics right now is a sustained effort to never talk about those things, right? To, right. to find ways of, of 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 avoiding the subjects. And uh, and Bernie, I mean, that's that's what he he lives and breathes, right? I mean, it's like if you go to Skinner concert, you're going to hear Free Bird. You go to a Bernie Sanders rally, you're going to hear we're the only major country on earth that doesn't guarantee health care is a right. And I think that's exactly right. I think that the instinct that somebody like Bernie has is so positive. And I wish that more were adopted this model is that if you ask about one of those social issues that I agree we can't be neutral on, they're important, um, she will give a succinct but very clear answer that comes from the same moral commitment to egalitarianism equal rights for everybody that motivates his economic politics. So he'll he'll say, I believe in a woman's right to control her own body. He'll say, you know, we shouldn't discriminate against anybody, whatever the case may be. But then he's going to pivot right back because he has such good message discipline to those subjects on which the left's um, 
which the left's agenda is most popular, that cut the most across culture war lines, and that the right least wants to talk about. You know, like, you should have a union, uh, everybody should have health care, you know, stuff like that. And, and I do find it disappointing. Uh, I think that, like, what we see from a lot of Bernie crowds, uh, you know, besides Bernie, uh, is, you know, I, I think John Fetterman, who I wrote about recently for Jackman, you know, he has his flaws. I tried to, I tried to sort of be warts and all about it in the article, but I think that, I think that he's also good on this. Uh, that, you know, that this is a, this is a model that I think can just be much more, um, you know, can just be much more effective trying to right. uh, constantly appeal to Team Blue in the culture war and sort of pace the Bernie Sanders program on top of that. Right? Right. I mean, you, know, you, you, you keep the focus, uh, you keep the focus precisely where the right, for very good reasons, uh, from right. their perspective, doesn't want it to, to be on, right? I mean, like, like you don't call, if you're a good debate, Lindsey Graham, you know, instead of uh, instead of calling Graham a bigot or, you know, like focusing on even the Republican Party, right? Like Sanders doesn't even really do that. Right? What he does is he says this is, you know, he refers to Lindsay in one of his opening statements as, as uh, a representative of the establishment. And he just starts talking about, you know, about health care, retirement savings, and, and all of that stuff. Because I think if you're going to appeal, and I'm not talking about those hardcore conservatives, right? I don't think you're going to get those, right? But, like, if you're going to appeal to people who are not yet on your side who are winnable, I think that the, I think by far the most promising way to appeal to them is by saying, here's how our program can materially benefit you. Right. We have to wrap it up. Uh, ben Burgess is a philosophy professor at Morehouse College, a columnist for Jacobin Magazine, as well as The Daily Beast, and author of several books. Most recently, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, Why He Still Matters. Thank you, prof thank you Professor. Uh, thank you, Canadian. Okay, drive safely. How, uh, is the road... Burning up? Is there is there asphalt to drive on? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay for now. Gas is too expensive, but otherwise it's all right. Okay, thank you. Uh, that's Professor Ben Burgess. You. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. It's our January 6th Select Committee hearing viewing party. In exactly one hour, we're going to shut down the live stream and everybody in the virtual studio audience, we're all going to watch the, the hearings for, I think it's going to be about two hours. Then we will resume the show. We'll go live on YouTube again. I will take your calls. If you would like to watch the uh, select committee hearings with us, go to my website and hit pay-per-view. It doesn't cost anything. We just call it pay-per-view. It'll give you the link. You can join our virtual studio audience, join the conversation. And uh, yeah, I just want to add one thing about AOC and this, how, how we're allowing the right to define what we stand for. This is from last week's Economist, which I think as far as liberal magazines go, The Economist is pretty solid. 
The Economist writes, fringe and sometimes dotty ideas have crept into democratic rhetoric, peaking in the feverish summer of 2020 with a movement to, quote unquote, defund the police, abolish immigration enforcement, shun capitalism, relabel women as birthing people and inject anti-racism into the classroom. If the Democrats are defined by their most extreme and least popular ideas, they will be handing a winning agenda of culture war grievance to the Republican Party. Well, it crept into it, it. These topics didn't creep into Democratic rhetoric. There are very few Democrats who are talking about defunding the police, who are talking about abolishing immigration enforcement. There is absolutely no one in the Democratic Party who talks about shunning capitalism. I have never heard a democratically elected Democrat talk about relabeling women as birthing people. That's creeping into Democratic rhetoric as reported by Fox News or magazines like The Economist. This is uh, some of these things that The Economist brings up are minor policy issues like defunding the police, uh, which we could talk about later. Uh, I happen to believe in defunding the police. I think that's a bad uh, phrase. I think we can do better, like fund the social workers, uh, abolishing immigration enforcement. Nobody's calling for that. We're talking about getting rid of ICE. Nobody's shunning capitalism. They're criticizing it. I've never heard of anybody trying to relabel women as birthing people and anti-racism. Uh, my God, uh, with all that's going on in, in, in the world, uh, Fox News and the right wing is upset because it's more important to say you're anti-racist uh, than not racist. I don't know. It's. It's all nonsense. As Ben Burgess talks about over at the Daily Beast, do what Bernie does. Talk about five things. Wages, the billionaire class, the environment, raising the minimum wage, health care. Uh, the woke vote is important, but we already have it. Uh Let's go to the Hershenfelds. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst, and he joins us, I believe, uh, on video. Are you there? And Ethan Hershenfeld. Hello. And Ethan Hershenfeld joins us. Are you gentlemen uh, not showing your video? We're no, trying. You're we're not trying. allowing. You're not allowing it. It says we're the host has stopped it. You've stopped us, David. You're blocking us. Dan. Us. Yes. Uh, this is a recurring problem. So well, I think it's anti-Semitism. Well, everything's anti-Semitism. OK, there you go. Uh, Dan, are you there? OK, I can't. Uh, people... Do you want us to sign out? Should I sign out no, and sign no, back? No, in? no, no, I'm working. I'm working on it. I'll, I'll get it straightened out in the next 30 seconds or so. In the meantime, let me just say unto my people, you have been evil, and this has not gone unnoticed, and your payback will be swift. 
Right. You should have the ability now. All right. Let's see if we can. Thank you, Dan. Ask to start video. And there we go. There he is. Okay. We're going to have to start. Uh, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to have to have a meeting. Okay. Hello. It's good to Hello. see you. How are you doing? I'm, I'm hanging in there. It's hot. And Listen, uh, David, I completely agree with you. It, it's the economy, stupid. Um, he was brilliant. He got elected. Staying on message. I think part of the problem may be that just like Trump likes whipping up his own crowd by saying crazy stuff, maybe people on the far left like the same thing rather than staying on message. It's the economy, stupid. And they may get a lot of gratification from that. It, it shows. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to beat up on the left because the left does a pretty good job of that all by themselves. And I consider myself a leftist. And I do think that we all have to grow and learn how to communicate better. And if people want to be identified by different pronouns, we honor that. It's it's no or but the real issues facing this country are physical safety. And there, you can only isolate five issues to talk about to win elections. Correct. 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 Yes. You, it, it can't be um, for all of the above. And the way you win elections is you talk about jobs, inflation, health care, and you demonize the ruling class. That's how you win elections. Uh, it seems that the Republicans are saying now that, yes, global warming is a problem. We're all going to fry to death. But our economy is more important. So we're not going to do anything to affect our economy. And I think that's ass backwards. But it, it's, it may be a women, winning strategy. Politically, but not economically, because as Joe yeah. Biden pointed out, climate change is costing something like three hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. But I guess yeah. if you're Wall Street, that three hundred fifty billion dollars, that's just means more money is moving around the economy and you get to skim off the top. So it's a good thing. Right. Uh, now, you're in Cape Cod, Ethan. Yeah, I just got back here after two weeks, and uh, last night I shot that new uh, Showtime pilot, my little scene in that, which was full of a lot of fun with uh, with Mandy Patinkin and his wife, Catherine Grody. They were very funny. The scene was very funny, and it was very satisfying, but it was very hot. So, um, I even got to... Uh, I, 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 at one point, I thought of a funny line. Their son is the writer, and um, the director is the director. And I was just doing a small role, but I thought I got to tell them this line. I had a line, and then so I very politely said to the director, "Look, this might be above my pay grade. I'm doing this small part, but I think if, if this would be funny." So he relayed it. They liked it. The actor liked it. Then the producer liked it. Then the the writer liked it. So I got a. It was very satisfying. Good. That's so, great. Yeah. 
Cape Cod has been described to me as idyllic. I think we went there when I was very young. Has it been? It, it's not Martha's Vineyard. It's not been taken over by the. No, it's uh, Martha's Vineyard is an island, and Cape Cod is a peninsula. But it's the same thing, I think, uh, topographically. But and the sharks—it's the same sharks chewing same on shark. the basically the same bathers. Yeah. Do you? But has it been taken over by? Oh. Has it been Hamptonized? No. In in fact. Um, I, there's one uh, I was driving uh, today with a friend who was dog sitting and then right before he left we went to the beach and we were driving and there's one house that's so Hamptons and disgusting and I pointed it out to him and I said <laughs> I used that exact word I, it was just a disgrace and sure enough the owner is out front today it was a cottage that was probably about 28 feet wide and now it's about 85 feet wide he just made it sprawl and then he put in a lawn and all sorts of landscaping and today there are trucks there moving dirt and putting in trees and this asshole is standing on the lawn there ordering people you know he should he should just fall in one of those holes it's it's the wrong <laughs> but anyway you know as long as he's having fun that's right. really my attitude so. I, dr hershenfeld i was driving around new jersey i think it was yesterday we stumbled into uh, one of the lakes, not the actual lake. It's a town, something lakes. Pompton Franklin. Lake. Franklin Frank Lakes. Franklin Lakes. Have you driven through Franklin Lakes? Nope. I've heard of it. Very arboreal. A lot of trees. Yeah. And then these gabled mansions. And I start looking and I fall prey to it. I think, well, I would be happy. This would make me happy living in there. But... Uh, I don't think it would make you happy. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. No. You no. <laughs> I, I heard that. I was quoting a punchline. A woman I know. She was just taking the comedy workshop. She did one of the greatest jokes I've ever heard. She worked as a she worked as a teacher, a math teacher, and she told this joke that one of her students raised his hand and says, "Yeah, but you know all this algebra. Like, am I going to really have to know this when I grow up?" And she says, "You." No. <laughs> I just, I almost fell over. It was such a great joke. How much of the stuff, Dr. Hershenfeld, that you were forced to learn, you're actually using now as a psychiatrist? Um, you mean like in medical school? I would just say, yeah, all the... I, yeah. I, that's, not, that's not fair about the medical school because you become a specialist but all yeah. the math, I guess the, the math and the chemistry and. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, let me give you a. Uh, a Devar Torah. A Devar Torah. <laughs> so, so I have a certain medical condition. It's not going to kill me so soon. So don't get excited. Okay. David. But it, it's, you know, it, it's not critical, but it needs taken care of. But of course, modern day hospitals are organized so that the surgeon, all he does is operate because they get paid for operating. Nobody pays anybody for talking to patients. So who do I get to talk to? Something, a new invention called a PA. A physician's assistant. 
And this person is supposed to answer my questions. And I've said to this person directly, you seem like a very nice young girl. But I hope you didn't use the word girl. <laughs> or young. <laughs> I, or seem. Did you I say seem? Birthing, birthing person. No, no, come on. <laughs> Terrible look. She's whatever. a professional. You can't call her a girl. There's no. It's not whatever. No, it's it matters. It ma- everything matters. No, this <laughs> matters. Listen, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But I said, you're not a physician, so you tell me stuff, and that's it's nice to hear your thinking. But I'm not sure I believe any of it mm-hmm. because you didn't go to 12 years of medical school. You don't have all that knowledge behind you. You may know this little wedge that applies to me, but. So in basically you were sweet talking her. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You were trying to charm her. Uh, Can I? That's the answer. That the, the, you got to go through, you know, the ritual, and um, it's, it's so so. You know a lot of different stuff, and people know you know a lot of different stuff, and some of it is applicable. I'm glad I did it. Plenty of people are shrinks without having a medical degree, right. and God bless them, as my younger colleague would say. But well, Dr. Uh, Benjamin, Dr. Benjamin uh, doesn't have a medical degree. Exactly. In fact, but, he has no degree. But but he calls himself a doctor. Well, he's a doctor. He's almost a doctor in other fields. Right. Let Not, me let me push back on one thing the the doctor just said. You're you're no. a, you're a little biased here because you are a, a medical doctor. But my experience has been uh, being in an emergency room. It's when the rubber meets the road, it's the nurses and the doctors get out of the way. That's what I've seen. The doctors act like they're in charge, but it's and and I saw that uh, without revealing too much about what I've been through. It was it is the nurses who know everything much. Well, I would agree with you in that kind of a situation. But in more complex situations that need a lot of thought and understanding and statistical knowledge and knowledge of various medications and blah, blah, blah. I'll take the doctor. Thank you very much. Well, you know more than I do. But my advice to listeners is when you are in a situation where a loved one is needs medical attention, uh, make sure you're polite to the nurses. Yeah. And and listen, he, he knows more than you do, and I know more than both of you. <laughs> and I will tell you that you're right, David. Um, I had a doctor once when I accidentally cut my finger. I went into the ER, and he was he gave me the most idiotic exam to see whether I had I uh, sliced the nerve and I knew what he was doing was idiotic I knew I had cut the nerve in my thumb this is about 25 30 years ago 
and he he was a doctor. I mean, he 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 hadn't specialized yet, but he knew nothing. He was just an absolute idiot. So I would have any day rather had a a nurse or just someone with a little bit of common sense doing that exam. So, by the way, we should mention that Ethan's alter ego is yes. Doctor Samuel Benjamin, founder yes. and chief emotional officer of the New York. Uh, American Institute of Eclectic Modality, and everybody should go to Amazon. You get special dispensation and pick up Today Is Now. It Today Is Now. Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Yeah. Yes. It's not just a book. It's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle choice. <laughs> I don't think it's a good lifestyle choice necessarily, <laughs> but it's a choice. And also you're born with it. So it's both nurture and it's nature. <laughs> So it's pretty amazing. That's what makes it eclectic. It's eclectic modality therapy. And it will change your life, not necessarily for the better, probably not. <laughs> but it will change your life by $14 if you get the hardcover. <laughs> and it will change your life by 7 if you get the paperback. But change... Change is guaranteed. Today is now. Uh, get the book, live the lifestyle, and see the movie, which will be coming out in the fall. I, I just want to say that you changed my life because... Uh, two weeks ago, I had 14 extra dollars. I, I bought the hardcover of Today Is Now, and I am now no longer have that $14 in my checking account. And I want to thank yeah. you for that, because I would have said right. that. And one, one thing that, to quote my own book, what Dr. Benjamin says is, in, it's a chapter about change. And what he says, basically, about change, and of course, change is the bread and butter of therapy. No one goes to therapy because they're happy the way things are. Everyone goes to therapy because they think that they want something to be different. But one of the most important insights and pieces of advice, because he's not he's not a, a strict Freudian in the sense that he's unwilling to dispense advice. He's happy to talk. In fact, he talks a lot. In fact, he rarely shuts up. Um, so one of the things that he points out about change is that you should always count it. <laughs> so I have a, a serious question for Dr. Hershenfeld. You are a Freudian psychoanalyst that requires you to listen for long stretches of time it's the talking cure is it still the talking cure yeah yes it is and yeah. so you go to work and you listen all day and not exclusively but i try to listen more than i speak how's that and That's that's why God gave you two ears and one mouth. Right. But I, I'm gassy today. So I'm anyway, I'm not going to. So listening. So I doing this podcast. You have a chapter on listening. I have a chapter entitled listening. Dr. Benjamin has a very short chapter entitled listening. So um, what does he say uh, about listening? Because I had a, I. Well, let me let me lay it on you. It's only about a minute of text listening. You may have felt the urge to interrupt an interlocutor and interject your big idea, your clever retort. You have the urge to take the reins of the conversation and trot off to a different corner of the ranch. That's natural. That's what it means to be a social creature, a communicator. But what if you were to ignore that urge and just go along for the ride? Be all ears in the literal sense of the phrase. Picture yourself as a fleshy and cartilaginous human ear, lobe <laughs> and all. Maybe, maybe some little hairs. Maybe not. I'm just, I'm just being cilia. 
<laughs> ah, nice. yes. And some tiny bones and, a, and little crystals to boot. Notice what happens when you let yourself become nothing but a receiver of sound. Just how sensitive can you get? There you go. Like the microscopic cilia, you literally don't miss a beat. You are a high-fidelity receiver. Listen, listen, and then listen a little deeper. How deep can you go? Wow. Brilliant. Right, right. Okay. That, that, so, Dr. Hershenfeld, yes. listening requires concentration. It also requires, well, f go ahead, it doesn't. Well, a certain type of concentration. Um, Freud recommended a kind of free-floating attention where you're also paying. Oh, you're, I, I, you're also at the same moment able to write up the bill. <laughs> no, sorry. I interrupted. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you're also paying attention to your own associations. Because very often they tell you important things about what's being communicated to you that, that um, are not obvious on the surface. So it's not concentrating like I got to listen to every word and and memorize it. It's a different type of listening. But it's, it's a listening that acknowledges, if I may, uh, as Dr. Benjamin, it's a listening that acknowledges that in the end, in the therapeutic relationship, in the end, as Freud said, it's all about me. <laughs> you may think it's about you, but it's about me. Do they That's called the transference. <laughs> Do they train you? Do, you, do they train you in listening? Is it? They do. They in the in the rigorous at the at the New York American Institute of Eclectic Modality Therapy. <laughs> what we do is we take the candidates, and we seat them in a chair, a very comfortable chair, and then we throw firecrackers and we we blast the we blast the TV <laughs> and we clap and we snap in their faces and we just we, we try we try to distract them <laughs> as much as possible. We yell at them. We we will arrange for ambulances to pass on the street. <laughs> All in an attempt. You really have to train to against distraction by distracting the candidate as much as possible. Right. Right. I right. give a whole course actually in analytic listening. Yeah. Indeed. And I give a course at my institute it's called listening while also texting. <laughs> so you can be at dinner with your spouse or whomever and and just continue to text uh, as much as possible but you really you're really paying attention. L listening is a form of communication that as you sit, but my experience has been sitting in meetings, the, the truly brilliant people that I've, that I know are the ones who can sit in a meeting and listen. I'm in awe of them where they, they, they can take it in. Not only if they're, in, there's some people who aren't in charge who just sit, not just who listen pay are completely focused they only talk when it's absolutely necessary i guess that that's everybody right everybody else who's ch jabbering away all the time are just trying to show off how brilliant they are and they're probably not right it's a it's a confidence game of not talking 
if, well, look at uh, Justice Thomas. He hasn't spoken in 30 years. Right. And he's th- thereby very slowly as like, like, like a black hole, like a gravitational force. He's taken all of the power of that court just through silence. It's pretty, pretty amazing. It's like a Jedi mind trick. Well, what advice do you think Dr. Samuel Benjamin would give to people who are starting out in their career? <laughs> Don't talk, right? Don't talk. Don't talk, but also don't listen. (laughs) (laughs) Because what you'll find as a youth is that a lot of people have a lot of advice for you and they're full of a lot of shit. So that's the main thing. They're telling you all of their their 2020 hindsight about their sorry excuses, the disastrous lives that they've led. And they're trying to build some advice based on that's that rickety scaffolding. So the key thing is just ignore them. It's also something that I advocate as Dr. Benjamin in intimate relationships. People say it's really all about it's all about trust and about listening. And it's really not about that. Just do what you want to do. If you have two people doing exactly what they want to do, that's a happy couple. Right. Think about it. They're both doing what they want to do. Together. They're happy. Together or nearby or in a neighboring borough or in the next state. But they're happy as opposed to these couples. They're always compromising. And it's it's like a conveyor belt of compromises. Right. That's that's a that's like a that's like a, a life sentence. Right. You do you. I'll do me. Yeah. And I'll look over and see you doing you and I'll yeah. do me and yeah. then I'll do yeah. your your best friend and your sister. And yeah. <laughs> I won't yeah. tell you <laughs> before yeah. you go, Dr. Hershenfeld. Where am I going? But well, b- before we go, I have noticed that I have to stop lecturing my children, that that I, I fancy myself trying to impart wisdom but I, it's not wisdom. It's just me wanting to dominate them, right? Yeah, it's totally useless. You, you, I've said this to you before, but it's really hard for you to, uh, to get it. You lead by example. Now, that doesn't work 100% of the time, but it works more often than lecturing. Right, right. It just does. Instead of telling my kids not to drink and drive, I should drink and drive and crash the car. And I become uh, there an example. You go. And I'm an example of why it's a bad idea. What are you reading this summer? I'm still reading The Odyssey. Where is, where, I, where is he I now? love it. I, by the way, David, you impressed me. You're not just the, you know, the, the, the dummy you come across as. Um, when I told you last week that I was reading the Odyssey, you said, oh, the Fitzgerald translation. Now, in my estimation, that that puts you into the intellectual category. Uh, well, I mean, that's the famous. What, whatever. I think like one out of 500 Americans could have come up with that. The son's name is Telemachus. Yeah, Telemachus. Telemachus. Yes, exactly. What's the dog's name? Here's a stumper. Uh, I'm trying. I'm, was there a Priam who was courting Penelope? Priam, Priam was the, um, the king of Troy. 
Who, who is Penelope, the wife who's knitting, waiting for him to come home? Knitting away, waiting for him to come home. Yes. And the dog was Astro. Close. And there was Ar- Argos. Argos was his dog. And the dog was waiting for 20 years. Ulysses shows up. Argos lifts his head, wags his tail, and... And dies. Oh, yeah. Well, very sad. It's a beautiful beautiful story. It's uh, an exciting story. I'm up to the best part now when Ulysses kills all the suitors. Oh, he's back home. He's back home. There's such an amazing buildup to this moment. It's thrilling is the only word I can think of. Who was the big, was it Antonus? Who, there was one suitor who really. Antonus. Antonus. Yes. Courting P- Penelope. Seems to me Penelope could have saved Ulysses a lot of aggravation and not allowed all these men in the house. Don't you think? Uh, they barged in and they wouldn't leave. Really? They were powerful men. Wow. And plus, there would not have been any story if she had done if she had locked the door. All right. Uh, you, now you're tempting me t- to uh, reread that book. I'm going to have to read it. I never read it. I read the selections we had to read in middle school or whatever. Watch but. this, Professor Hershenfeld. Watch this. What are you reading, uh, Ethan? Watch this. What are you reading? I'm reading uh, Today Is Now the by Fitzgerald Dr. Samuel tra- Is that the Fitzgerald translation? If it's Joe translated this into Greek, if you want to read the Greek. Yeah. Today is now. Um, by the way, I wanted to say this off topic, which is that I know Matthew. Oh, but excuse me for one second. We started Winter's Bone. Oh. Oh. I started Winter's Bone and the phone rang. And because I'm watching it on my phone. It was a little hard to get back to because it's a little it's one of those movies that should be seen in a theater. But I'm going to over the weekend. I'm What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to a movie theater with my phone, pay fifteen dollars. You know, Thor is playing and I'll watch my phone. It is it is bleak, but it is it's redemptive at the same time. I will I will will get through it. Ethan, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I was simply going to say that I know the guy who's testifying tonight. I know him personally, Matthew Pottinger. And I can say that he's a real mensch uh, because his brother was one of my college roommates and is a good friend of mine. I thought that was the guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I I knew him personally 30 years ago, but he's an amazing guy. Became a Marine, taught himself Mandarin and became a a journalist. And then what a yes. What a mensch. mensch. Four years. He stayed with Trump for how long? How long did he work? No, but he was. But I know. But he was one of the guys you heard about these people who they think they could actually be in there and do something useful and be moderating. The fact that you're working in there, you know, there's an argument to be made. He quit. Did he go to the Justice Department to make? I don't know. Let's see what he has to say. I mean, what he has to say. It just seems to me I know he's your friend. No, 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 no. I, I know him personally. I, I can't say he's my friend. I, I, but it I, seems I'm, to me, I don't know much, but if you're working and your boss is about to wage an insurrection, quitting is good, but also going to the Justice Department, being a whistleblower, 
Right, more. right, right. That's what. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you. Uh, everybody go by today is now. Right Thank you. And Thank you. you. That's the back cover, which includes a dog. So, you know. Argos. Argos. No, Fafner. That's Fafner. And uh, go by today is now. If you don't laugh hysterically, I will reimburse you. That's my Feld guarantee. Thank, Thank you, you, David. Thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. Thank you, David. Thank you. Stay Peace. cool. Stay cool. Peace, Peace unto all of you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. And go watch Thug Thug Jew on, oh, thank you. on YouTube. Yeah. Let's get it up. To, let, that, that should be... A million. That should be a million views. Thanks, man. Thank you. Be cool. Adios. Well. David. Emil Guillermo joins us. We have exactly 25 minutes before be. the January 6th Select Committee hearings begin. And I just want to invite people who are watching us on YouTube to come on over and join the watch party starting at 8 p.m. We're going to watch it together. We're going to stop the live stream and then resume it, I guess, at 10 uh, to talk about what we saw. They've... they've Giving us a lot of tips. I mean, they can go into more detail, but uh, that Kinzinger uh, tweet pretty much has sort of told you that you're going to hear from a lot of high-ranking Republican officials what Trump did. Uh, he was not a leader. He was a voyeur. He was watching television. He was watching television for only three hours. Well, 187 minutes, which I think is... It's one of those numbers, 180, 187. If, if you're a Californian, you know what 187 was in the 80s. It was the, the law that was passed. It would take away all the rights to, to immigrants or, uh, you know, undocumented people. That was the and, that was uh, Arianna Huffington. I believe that was the 90s when and wasn't it? No. Yeah, it was the, the mid the mid 90s. Yeah. And. But 187 was a cry. They were going to it was the movement in California to take away all those rights. And so that's why when 187 minutes, I mean, this is another number to forever be associated with our democracy. You know, 187 minutes, really the threshold for almost losing what we gained in 1776. So we will see. He was watching television. And well, it was riveting in his defense. We all were. Right. We were all watching it. We were all what? But he was cheering. He was cheering on well, like, but some I mean, some like some arsonist, right? Admiring his reflection in the fire he set, right? That that was the thing about Trump. And uh, so, yes, I think you're right. Yeah, it's good that he was watching at least. But you know what? He had the power to do so much more. He yes, he power did. I think he got. I think he got caught up in it, the drama, and forgot yeah. that he could stop it. So I think he, like I said, he was like, he was doing him. He was uh, this voyeur president, and this is what he wanted, and he had to be reminded constantly by the people around him, uh, shouldn't we put out a statement? Shouldn't we do this? But, you know, I, I know you're going, you're, we're leading up to the primetime thing, but I, I get I lead up to it by thinking about certain people and, you know, because I have an Asian American lens because I write for the Asian American legal defense and education fund. I'm thinking of people like 
you know, Stephanie Murphy, Vietnamese American, who is a member of Congress and Chinese American Grace Meng. You know, Stephanie Murphy, by the way, is on the committee, on the January 6th committee. Grace Meng from New York, Chinese American. I think of Andy Kim, Korean American, who after all the, the, the drama was in this famous photo that was in the Wall Street Journal. He was sweeping away the debris. You know, right. so I think of the Asian American from, Jer- from New Jersey. Andy, Kim. Is, yeah, Andy Kim's from New Jersey. He was tormented, or they were they were all like hiding. But I I wrote this column in today. Know, I just want to say something. Yeah, because uh, I was in the Capitol and, and I saw Andy Kim, Congressman Andy Kim, Congressman Andy Kim, who cleaned up after yeah. January sixth. I walked up to him and I said, Congressman, you missed a spot. And dutifully, dutifully, he took out his his broom and he. (laughs) You got to go under the statue of Jefferson Davis. They never get under the statue of Jefferson Davis. That's where all the dust and feces. They're always sweeping it under those big white guys. You know, hey, so I'm watching. I'm when I think about January 6th, I wrote this in my Alda column this this morning. I think about Michael Fanon. The, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer, because, you know, when he was getting brutally attacked and pleading for mercy, people were saying, shoot that guy with a gun, his own gun. What was his response? He says, I have kids that and, and you know, his kids four of three of the four of his four kids are Chinese American. So when he was defending democracy, he was also defending diversity. Right. And he said, I, I got to take care of my kids. And right. so I think I think of Fanon, I think of and, you know, when I write a lot of people in some of these communities, you know, they're, they're so busy with their lives. They don't they don't think about, oh, should I watch this? Oh, I'll just catch the highlights on the Feldman show. Yeah. But interesting. I, I make huh? well, well, I, make I, them I real. that interesting. If somebody were beating me to a pulp. Yeah. If I said I have kids, I figure they would want to take me out of my misery and just finish me off. But that's I know because you lecture your kids too much. I'm are, the same way. I'm the same way. You got to lead by example and then get beaten up so that. No, no, I I forget the, the tone of it. Look, the, the thing about uh, Fanon's kids, they represent the new America, you know, and I tell people who are Asian-American who are, you know, don't. They may not see themselves in government. Actually, this year, there are more Asian-Americans running for office because they see the necessity to be empowered. But I tell people, think of your mothers and your fathers who immigrated here. And why did they why did they come here? You know, because a lot of people are just like, I'm doing my thing. They're, they've got this tunnel vision. They're going to have their success. But government, it, it's never been a big uh, calling for many Asian-Americans, except you know, we say maybe the last 10, 15 years, especially with the the stop API hate movement when Asian-Americans are targeted. But you right. think about, you know, Fanon's kids. I mean, three of his four kids are, are Chinese-American. And you think about the, the last census, because this is what's really brought us to this division in right. America. Right. You know, because we've got in the multi-race capital or multi-race uh, category, two or more races, we've gone from 9 million in 2010 to 33.8 million in 2020. 
That's a 276% increase. Diversity is working. We're sleeping with each other. And the politicians need to recognize this, that America really is coming together. Meanwhile, the whites only group has decreased 8.6%. So what have we seen just within the last week, this morning on social media, that former Trump aide, Garrett Ziegler, right? I heard the interview. Yeah, he got he's he, he's he used the Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. Then he went online and said, if you and he called January 6th, the hearings, he said the committee was an anti white campaign. And if you can't see that, your eyes are freaking closed. You Trotskyite, know? Trotskyite. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. he went they, into they the whole Bolshevik thing. Yeah, he said they mistook me for a weak Christian. Yeah. He also brought religion. And I believe he referred to the women, the low level, like Cassidy Hutchinson as a as a hoe. Right. And and here's what I hadn't heard. A thought. What does that mean? A thought. What does that mean? T-H-O-T. I don't know what a thought was. I mean, a thought and a hoe. I I had to look it up in the slang dictionary or something. And what does it mean? Well, I I didn't look it up because I was like, I was just because I was concentrating on race. He said. He said he was the least racist person right. that many of you have ever met. I have no bigotry. I just try to see the world for where it is. But he is extremely sexist. We know he's extremely sexist. Right. Thought means a woman who has many casual sexual encounters. So if you call a woman a thought and a hoe, it's redundant. It's That's just bad English. I think he ought to read E.B. White. Yeah. And just, you know, get get a sense of elegance. Miss Thistlebottom's Hobgoblins. Did you read that as a kid? Uh, which what is that? E.B. White. Yeah, I think. Yeah, how to write properly. Uh, Stuart Little, Charlotte Swift. You know, that was me. Right. So, uh, but, but look, you know, so this is really the core of why we have these great divisions. So in some ways, seeing Michael Fanon and hearing him say, "I got kids," and then then seeing, in fact, that he's got these three Asian American kids. Uh, you know, to the Asian American community, it's one of those things that says, hey, look, this is the democracy that we're trying to say. This is the new America we're trying to say. And what got me about Fanon is that last week when the, you know, the, you know, the one of the two of the writers were testifying before the committee, one of them, Stephen Ayers, actually tried to apologize mm-hmm. to Fanon. And he was asked, Fanon was asked, uh, did you accept it? And he said, uh, apologies are are personal. He said, save the apologies. That goes for anyone involved in January 6th. But he said, I found the guy, Stephen Ayers, disingenuous. And this is what stopped me in my tracks. He said, in regards to January 6th, I'm sorry. I am not anyone's rest stop on the road to redemption. Wow. Which I thought, oh. Man, E.B. White would like that sentence, that phrase. It stopped me cold. And I thought of every time someone has tried to apologize to me for something like when I interviewed Vincent Chin's killer in 2012, Ronald Liebens, and he tried to say, look, I essentially apologize for killing Chin, Liebens, who never served any time in jail and was essentially acquitted and has never paid the Chin estate any money. He said he was apologizing. And a lot of people in the Asian community criticized me for even talking to Evans. But 
you know, my my job was just not to be the judge of Evans, but to hear him and then to report it. I'm an opinion journalist. But I when I heard, uh, you know, Fanon's comment, you know, I'm not anyone's rest up on the road to redemption. I just wish I I knew that line in 2012. And I would have told that to Ronald Evans. I tell it to anyone who's trying to apologize for anything and looking to me for redemption. I'm not. One of the right. lesser known Bing Cosby and Bob Hope movies, The Road to Redemption. The Road to Rede- well, right. wait a minute. There was a road movie with redemption. Yeah. I and it was Hedy. What's what's her name? Oh, Dorothy Lamore. Yes. She was, she, she was the road. That, she, was she a, a, a was she a thought or a hoe? No, she was neither. She was neither. But uh, anyway, so I wrote about that and I, I was trying to get Asian-Americans riled up about these January 6th hearings because they're in prime time. And we're supposed to this is the wink that, hey, live, watch this. This is it. You know, and I'm, I'm happy that people are finally getting around like there's a new book called American Nero uh, and Nero. Um, I, I when I first heard or that, that, that Trump was doing nothing you know, on January 6th, Nero instantly came to mind. Get this. Fans of antiquity. And since many of your listeners are reading uh, the Odyssey, right? So they're fans of antiquity. Um, they and will. If you like turn- me, if you like my comedy, then you're a fan of antiquity. I know it's so well, you know, we can like freshen it up a bit with some new tags or something. Look, right. you turn to Nero, who is said to have fiddled as Rome burned. Get this. 64 CE, July 18th. So almost all those hundreds and thousands of years, July 18th. And today's the 21st. It's like the coincidence of it all. Isn't that kind of Rome? That happened 64 CE, July 18th. And we're all fiddling while Rome burns. That's when Nero and, you know, there's still some discussion whether no Nero really fiddled in the classical sense. But uh, I don't know if there was uh, music involved, really, but uh, in the broad sense and things that I was reading, uh, Nero was fiddling. Trump, Trump had the I guess he had music. He had lyrics. Hang Mike Pence. That was a good lyric. You know, uh, kill him with his own gun. That's what they said to Fernand. That was a good lyric. Yeah. Hang Mike Pence. That would have been. Hang Mike Pence. Would have been. I mean, no comment. Uh, The San Francisco school board, uh, one of the members apologized for making generalizations about people of color and their achievements. What what happened? Well, you know, San Francisco has gone through this. Are we too woke for our own good? And we've got a group of people, conservative Asian-Americans mostly, who've started recall efforts. They got rid of the DA Putin. and they got rid of the school board in uh, February and November of last year. Well, one of the replacement school board members, uh, an Asian-American and Sue uh, started talking about brown and black educational achievement. And she made a comment how it's related to being a, you know, the, the, the way their families are and their poverty and they just don't get the kind of encouragement. And she got, well, first of all, is that a racist statement, David? You tell me. Well, you know, 
I have made statements like that, but it's usually accompanied with data like here's some finding from this survey or this report or, you know, she just made a statement, a blanket statement. Even the San Francisco Chronicle had some problems with reporting it until they said, well, yeah, it looks like she is dealing in stereotypes. So it is racist. And so they reported it. Uh, this uh, Ansu had it in uh, in social media. So she got lambasted by everyone who was tight with, they were mad. First of all, that progressives were recalled in November. So she's getting it. And now finally she apologized yesterday, said, look, uh, I was insensitive. And this is the way it should be. You make a mistake. You should be able to apologize and say, I screwed up. I'll do better next time. But we live in an era where everyone wants your head. And, and, Later yesterday, a the president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, which is the, you know, the political body servicing all of San Francisco, not just education, wanted Ansu to resign. So it's not over. I don't know if Ansu is going to resign, but it's, you know, we, we just live in this era where it's beyond cancel culture. It's like, hey, you screw up. We want your head. Right. There's no there's no debate. You know, so that's that's what's happening in San Francisco. The uh, maybe too woke for its own good. I don't know. Well, in San Francisco, being woke is what passes for leftism. Nobody is willing to solve homelessness or take on uh, the landlords or Silicon Valley. So they rely on performative wokeness to appear compassionate when what people yeah. in San Francisco really need is a place to live. Uh, well, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of times wokeness, uh, performative wokeness is, is like, uh, you know, they pass the book. They say, look, this is what I believe. Now you do it. You know, right. they want to call someone to take care, you know, to, to mow the lawn. Oh, Talk to me about codifying into law, abortion, contraception, uh, same-sex marriage, and you say vegans should, there should yeah. be a law protecting look, us? First of all, look, I'm glad that they're codifying rights. We need to- we Well, they're need, not. It's not going to pass in the Senate. Well, okay, it's not going to pass. So if it's not going to pass, then it's all just an empty exercise. And you, the, so use better language. Don't say codify, veganize the language. I think of the fish. I No, I'm serious. I mean, instead of using a term like kill two birds with one stone, I use a term like feed two birds with one scone. I, if the language is an attitude. And so if you use the term codify, it makes me think of fish and maybe pescatarians are all right by that. But I think that if they use more thoughtful language, they could say, take a, uh, uh, a collard green uh, tortilla idea where you slightly steam the collard green and then you use the leaves and you wrap. You can wrap those old laws and put them into a collard green wrap and then you veganize the language and that you don't, wouldn't have to use codify. And if it's all moot anyway, because it's not going to happen, then why bring in the poor cods? Right. We have three minutes and 30 seconds before the... January 6th hearings begin. If you're watching us on YouTube 
and you'd like to sit in our virtual studio audience and enjoy the watch party with us, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now. Hit pay-per-view. It doesn't cost you anything. It'll take you right into our Zoom room. And then after the hearings, we're going to resume the live stream on YouTube and on Zoom. We will take your calls, your reactions, along with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of the Progressive Democrats of America, and the professors in Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ann Lee, and Professor Jonathan Bick. We have one minute, the All-Star Game. Are you happy about the Yankees? Well, you know, I am because, you know, they, 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 it, it, it tears me because I like the Mets more than the Yankees. You probably are a Yankee guy though, right? I, I, I see. I, I like that. The fact they focus on John Carlos Stanton and also on Aaron judge, who's from my neck of the woods in California. He's from Linden, California. That's why he's got the 99 because it's for highway 99. That's good. But they should have given more, more attention to Shohei Otani, who is the best player in baseball, better than Babe Ruth, better than Babe Ruth. And it's funny how a year ago I was talking how some people were xenophobic, saying how baseball was hurting itself because its star marquee player, Shohei Otani, doesn't speak English. And wouldn't it be nice? This is Stephen A. Smith on CNN or ESPN said, wouldn't it be nice if they had a white player like Mike Trout as the marquee player of the game? And I, I let him have it for that. But now a year later, Shohei Otani is now seen as the best player in baseball. But still, they're, they're reluctant to fully embrace him in the media. Anyway, hey, David, uh, how, many, how many million viewers do you think will be watching tonight? It'll be interesting. I don't think it'll score as high as last, uh, as Cassidy Hutchinson. We have to wrap it up. Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Read them over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And follow me on Twitter at Emil Amok. How do they watch your live stream? Very quickly, please. They can see it on uh, Facebook.com slash EmilGuillermo.media or AMOK.com. All right. We have 30 seconds before. Thank you, Emil. We have 30 seconds before we start watching the January 6th Select Committee hearings. If you would like to join us, go to my website, hit pay-per-view. It'll take us, take you into our virtual studio audience, join the conversation. If you're watching us on YouTube, we will be back with another live stream, a wrap-up to discuss the January 6th, tonight's January 6th hearings. We'll see you in about two hours. Donald Trump knowingly sent an armed mob to the Capitol. That's one of the chilling accusations coming to us from tonight's January 6th committee. They held their ninth hearing. Thank you for joining us. The January 6th ninth televised hearing has just wrapped up. Tonight, the committee focused on the 187 minutes, more than three hours, where Donald Trump sat in the White House dining room watching Fox News's coverage of the Capitol riot while ignoring requests from his entire White House staff, beseeching him to order his supporters to vacate the Capitol. 
Instead, Donald Trump put a target on his own vice president's back by tweeting out as the rioting continued that Mike Pence was a coward who didn't have the courage to stand up for his country. That tweet is what prompted two witnesses to resign. Those two witnesses were Matthew Pottinger, who served as deputy national security advisor to the president. Pottinger says he was proud of Trump's foreign policy and praised the Abraham Accords, but the riot was too much for him, so he resigned. Also, Sarah Matthews testified. She worked as deputy White House press secretary. She testified that she quit on January 6th because of Donald Trump's tweet. We heard testimony that the Secret Service detail assigned to protect Mike Pence thought they were going to die. And some went so far as to communicate messages to their loved ones to say goodbye. We learned that even though Donald Trump knew his supporters had shown up for his speech on the ellipse, heavily armed, he told them to march towards the Capitol anyway. President Trump didn't fail to act to stop the insurrection. He chose not to act. So said Representative Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois. We saw embarrassing footage of Senator Josh Hawley. Senator Hawley raised a fist in solidarity with the protesters who were still standing behind the barricades. A Capitol Hill police officer later testified that when Hawley clenched his fist, it excited the crowd. The officer said she found it especially appalling since Hawley raised the fist standing securely behind the protection of the police. The committee then showed video of Hawley running for his life like a coward as the protesters swarmed through the Capitol. I have footage of the reaction inside the committee hall. This is uh, this is how the audience reacted to video of Josh Hawley running like a coward. That is video of Josh Hawley being isolated on video and running, and here he is running down the steps, and the audience sees it, and once again, (laughs) we didn't get to hear that uh, on our feed. Really shocking testimony from the president's counsel, Pat Cipollini, who invoked executive privilege while at the same time indicating that President Trump had absolutely no interest in ending the siege on the Capitol. It was really incredible testimony from Pat Cipollini. He was invoking executive privilege as Trump's attorney, but at the same time saying he knew that Trump didn't want the rioting to stop. Everyone in the White House told Trump to call off the rioters. Everyone says they told him to call off the rioters, but somehow nobody was willing to step up on January 7th and go public. No one was willing to go public during the second impeachment. Everyone who testified, everybody in the White House who testified tonight claims they did the right thing. But somehow when it came time for the impeachment, nobody went public. This was billed as the final hearing, but we were told tonight that live televised hearings will continue in September 
as members of the committee spend the month of August gathering more information and talk to more witnesses. Congresswoman Liz Cheney says, quote, the dam has broken and more witnesses are coming forward. Uh, and finally, uh, there is some more information about the fight between Donald Trump and a Secret Service driver. Members of the Secret Service reportedly said it was common knowledge that Trump assaulted his uh, driver and uh, the Secret Service texts have mysteriously disappeared. But the during the hearing, uh, Liz Cheney said they'll have more testimony on this. We also heard testimony from chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who said he was shocked that Donald Trump refused to call him for help to stop the insurrection. Joining us is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. He is a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He is also an ordained minister who... Uh, in the uh, United Church of Christ. So thank you for staying up late, Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Let me play you a clip of Donald Trump. This came at the end of the hearings. This is Donald Trump the next day, January 7th, trying to make a national address on the insurrection. Yesterday, addressing the heinous attack yesterday, and to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm gonna do this, let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election. He couldn't over. bring himself to say the election is now over, and he still can't bring himself to say the election is now over after everybody was emotionally drained from January 6th. This was the last thing Donald Trump said before he left the the White House and retired, the Oval Office to retire to his bedroom. Later at 627, the president left the dining room and he went up to the White House residence for the night. On the screen is the last photograph of the president that night as he went into the residence. As he was gathering his things in the dining room to leave, President Trump reflected on the day's events with a White House employee. This was the same employee who had met President Trump in the Oval Office after he returned from the ellipse. President Trump said nothing to the employee about the attack. He said only, quote, Mike Pence let me down. A few minutes later. Amazing. That's amazing, isn't it? What do you think, Reverend Barry, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn? I think the committee did an outstanding job reminding us of how dangerous it is when people storm the Capitol and try to <laughs> overthrow our government. Yeah, I think they did a great job with that. Um, I think they're, they've done a good job of making sure that the history, the honest history is told. There is, though, the question of what 
have they proven, if anything, about actual criminal laws that the president broke? And that's where I think things get a little dicey. Now, they don't think that they necessarily have that responsibility to tell the Justice Department what statutes were violated. But most of the statutes require something a little bit more than what I've seen them present. And that is not just what somebody thought the president meant when he said, let's let's go to the Capitol. But how do we know that for sure? Because it's an element of most criminal laws that you actually understand you have an intent to do something. And that's where I think if if people think that this committee is is really there just to give ammunition to the Justice Department, somewhat reticent now to um, to act quickly, I think they got to show something else. I think they have to show the intent not on the basis of what other people say he meant, but on the basis of what he intended when he said, for example, and I still think this is one of the most damning things, when he's at the ellipse, people tell him there are people with guns there, and he says, I don't care, they're on my side. Mm -hmm. That's pretty damning. But I almost wish that there was somebody on this committee, not a Jim Jordan or one of these other idiots, but some kind of responsible, if this these people even exist, a responsible Republican member of the House who could do something like a cross-examination of these witnesses. Do you think that would hurt? Or do you think it would help? I think I, mostly tonight, it seemed a little overscripted tonight. Somebody might have said, but wait a minute, did you really think that? Or what did you say when some of the witnesses would say, well, I had an argument with someone in the in the press room, as the deputy press secretary said, and I had an argument. And he said uh, the president shouldn't say anything and should just go. Who is that person? I mean, let's name names. Let's ask the right questions. And I don't think there's anybody on this committee who intends to do that. And it's it's not the fault of the committee. The fault is with, of course, Kevin McCarthy, who refused to allow any Republicans on the committee. And then, you know, I ended up with Kitzinger and, and, and Cheney because they insisted they wanted to be on this committee. Is there anybody other than Kinziger and Cheney who could play that role, who questioned the witnesses? Uh, I don't think so. You can't get a Republican to vote to protect contraception. You can't get anybody in Congress to vote to protect gay marriage. So where are these fictitious Republicans? Yes, except on on the protect. The same-sex marriage, they did get, what, 47, I think. Yeah, that's true. Stefanik, Kinzinger. Yes, even people like Stefanik. Now, Stefanik, of course, is a a Trump toady. We know that from the impeachment hearings. Harvard, by the way. She graduated from Harvard. Oh, yes. (laughs) Excuse me. A a (laughs) Trump-Harvard skunk. But anyway... um, yeah, I mean, she, she certainly has a tenacity to ask questions, and without 
quite the rudeness and uh, that somebody like a Jim Jordan or a Louis Gohmert would bring to questioning. But this was the first night that I just thought, just so that it isn't clear that this is the only thing that is, um, this is the only thing that could be the interpretation of, of the words of Donald Trump. I wish somebody had been able to probe a little bit. I got a little, I'm looking here. People are saying you're muffled. You're David. muffled? I'm, I'm, I have the chat up in a different place, so I'm reading it, unfortunately. They're saying you're very muffled. I Maybe people can wait. Some people say they can hear you. I can certainly hear you. I can hear you. Let me. Well, we've had problems in the past. Let me, if you don't mind. I'll go ahead. Let me, let me just. Yeah, no, no, you sound something. fine. You sound fine. Uh, sometimes people, okay. sometimes people think, uh, anyway, you're so, a lawyer. You're a member of the Supreme Court Bar. Yep. You're a, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. This is a show trial. At best, they're going to make a criminal referral. At best, they're going to go to Merrick Garland and accuse Trump of witness tampering. Apparently, uh, they yep. have evidence that Trump has been calling uh, witnesses, urging them not to testify. But in the end, it is they're not going to impeach Trump. This that that ship has sailed. This is ultimately right. in Merrick Garland's hands. Can you get a conviction? You have to pick a jury. Right. How many votes do you need to convict Donald Trump? Well, you need 12 people. You so have if to one have person, one person, one person decides can simply say, I just don't think that the impetus here. I want to read uh, just <laughs> Excuse a me piece for a second. of what put a, put is a, put a, put conspiracy. Put, put a pin in that thought because it's very important to me. How is it possible for Merrick Garland to get 12 jurors without one of them being QAnon, without one of them? 75 million people voted for Trump. How can you right. not have somebody on the jury who voted for Trump. And if you voted for Trump, you're going to vote not to convict. There's no way. I don't see how you can prosecute him. Do you? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's, this is not, this is not uh, jury nullification in the way that I'm hoping juries nullify criminal laws about doctors who provide abortions. I mean, this is a major, major case. Can you get it? They would be from the District of Columbia. And this is a very democratic uh, city and not a pretty progressive city at that. I think you could get a jury. The question is, is the evidence going to be strong enough so that the, the person who isn't just a, a kind of a shill, is that person going to have enough information to convict? Is that person going to think that the kinds of statements that Liz Cheney, Kitzinger and others have talked about from from Trump, that that shows an intent 
to destroy the government. Let me let me just read this language, just a piece of the seditious conspiracy language, which is the most serious crime about which he could be convicted. If two or more persons in any state or territory conspire to overthrow, put down or to destroy by force the government of the United States or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States shall be fined or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. I mean, that's, you know, you've you've got to show to a jury through evidence other than that, which that I've seen at any of these, that he actually did participate in that conspiracy and that he led it because that's the only I mean, that's what everybody says. And that's what I believe. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think he clearly did this. I think he shows no remorse. He has never apologized, as you pointed out, for anything that happened. And what we're really left with at the end of tonight's hearing is some of the most stunning things were said in the last 20 minutes when they were playing these comments about uh, the kind of of messages that people were sending to him, the the conduct that he had uh, on the 7th, even on the 7th of January. And I think I was a little surprised that they didn't have more evidence about the connections or the possible connections between what was happening on January 5th and what happened on January 6th, because this helps to You know, there were lots of rumors about whether some of Trump's people were meeting with the Proud Boys and others that night before. And it was alluded to in some of the previous hearings, but I thought maybe they would actually get to the heart of that tonight. And and they didn't. And maybe that's the kind of thing they're going to want to do in September. Well, let's go back to what Garland can try Trump on. You're a lawyer, criminal conspiracy to overthrow the government. You just cited that statute. Seditious conspiracy. Uh, What about uh, causing harm to the police? As you said, knowing that his supporters were heavily armed and then telling them to march on the Capitol, I will join you. Isn't that against the law to incite a riot that causes bodily harm? Yes, it is. But you still have to prove that he incited the people. In other words, that I'm going to join you. I will walk down to the Capitol. Let's go down there. That I'd say that alone doesn't prove that he was inciting them to riot. That's what I think it means. But and I think that's clearly what the committee members believe. And I think most people, sane people believe. But as a criminal matter, is there enough evidence to convict him of having authorized, encouraged, supported the idea of trespass on the Capitol or the injury to police officers? I still think that's going to be a very tough case to make legally. Can you find anything? I think you know more than I do. I think you, unfortunately, you may be, I think I might agree with you. 
It may not be uh, the slam dunk. Uh, just because we know somebody's guilty, it doesn't mean we can guarantee a conviction. O.J. Simpson is exactly. Yeah. Well, there. Remember, there's very interesting stuff happening in Georgia now, because clearly the prosecutor in the Georgia case looking at uh, his effort to convince officials down there to basically find votes, p pick electors who were not actually the electors that were sent to Washington. I mean, there's evidence about that. I think that's an easier case to make than anything here in Washington about sedition. Right. So I do think there's, uh, I, I think George is the place to look for a criminal prosecution and a successful criminal prosecution. So it, it depends on the states, not not the Justice Department, to to. Yeah, I mean, I the riot. I mean, the pop, well, the popular opinion here is that Merrick Garland's doing nothing, uh, that he's given up. I I doubt that that's the case. I real I don't know Merrick Garland. I think I only met the guy once, but um, I think he is probably much further along on investigating and considering prosecution than we think or than we know. I don't think the guy's given up. You know, Alvin Bragg, the newly elected district attorney here in New York, is afraid to prosecute Donald Trump. The, the, he uh, replaced, uh, who was the, Cyrus Vance. Cyrus Vance, yeah. And they were building a case showing that Donald Trump inflated his property values when he needed a loan and deflated yeah. them when he owed taxes. That seemed like a slam dunk. Alvin Bragg took office this year, met with these prosecutors, and they quit when Alvin Bragg said, I don't think the evidence is there to convict. Alvin Bragg is chicken shit. He doesn't want to lose. He doesn't want to go up against Donald Trump because he's afraid he would be humiliated. This is about their egos, isn't it? This is about. Oh, yeah. A lot of a lot of this, because remember, Bragg needs to stand for election again. Uh, if he loses a high, high profile case like this, uh, he's uh, likely uh, to leave his job. Which he should. I mean, he should be willing to do that. But most of those, most of what's floating around in New York are civil penalties, not offenses. There's some where you might be able to go to jail. But if you want to if you want to see Donald Trump in jail, then you have to find a criminal statute. And certainly there are criminal violations going on in Georgia and they continue. Nothing, nothing has stopped. They're continuing evidence. And then we have accounts uh, just in the last 24 hours of his continuing effort to contact people in Wisconsin about trying to turn the legitimate electors into uh, people who are illegitimate. I mean, that's that's another state where they they ought to be looking at criminal prosecution right. of Donald Trump. So, so Georgia, Georgia, a, Wisconsin, that's what I think. That's where I see the hope 
of more more hope of a criminal prosecution than I do in the federal government. What about criminal negligence? I don't know if you remember the Astro World Festival, Travis Scott rapper, right through a concert. I think it was back in you know October of last year, right. and you know ten people died because he was getting the audience revved up allegedly and. He was careless and reckless. I don't know if he's facing criminal charges. I know they're civil suits, but yep. there was talk of charging him with criminal negligence. Well, if you can be charged for riling a crowd up at a concert, uh, why can't you be charged for riling a crowd up uh and then having them march to the Capitol and riot and injure and kill, it seems like there could be criminal negligence. And negligence is, it, it's a difficult thing to prove because remember, so much of what was said, particularly by Adam Kidziger tonight, he talks about what normal people would do. And... I'm sure he's right. You don't spend three hours looking at watching television and not do anything when you had the capacity to do it. On the other hand, making terrible mistakes isn't necessarily a criminal matter. It's not necessarily the kind of uh, utter abandonment of your oath of office. We Violating your mistake, oath of but, office but it was is not a crime. But was it a mistake or was it a conspiracy? Well, 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 it depends. First of all, you have to demonstrate that he actually didn't believe that he had won the election, that the whole thing is based on a fraudulent and knowing uh, representation of, uh, of what he thought. I mean, if he's just lying, including lying to himself, that could ironically become part of a defense. That's why when he when he says in that last uh, tweet that was talked about tonight that um, he, he starts out saying this was a stolen election. And of course, that's what led to a number of people deciding to leave the White House staff. But let's say he believed it. Let's say he, he said, I absolutely believe it. Rudy Giuliani, he, he told me I should believe it. I do believe it. I just have to say that to protect my integrity with my followers. Okay. It seems to me the committee did a pretty good job previously outlining how everybody in the White House told him he had lost. He had lost 50 trials to overturn yep. the election. His White House, everybody said you've lost. So he brought in Outside counsel, he bought, brought in Eastman, he brought in Giuliani, he brought in Sidney Powell, he brought in extrajudicial judges who had nothing to do, do with the White House to tell him what he wanted to hear. That's not criminal for a president to just keep bringing in, just keep trying to find people who will tell you what you want to hear, even though everybody... And the White House told you you lost? I don't think that that's enough 
to get a successful criminal prosecution for for encouraging or being a part of a seditious conspiracy. I think the guy, if he says, if he ever gets to trial, which I think is a bit unlikely, but if he does get to trial and he says, I honestly believed it, and people kept telling me that they had more and more evidence. And yes, and then somebody said, but Mr. President, didn't people on your staff say that you had lost the election fair and square? Yes, they they did. But I had a lot of other people I trusted who told me there were missing databases. There were all kinds of the, all of Mike Lindell, Mr. Pillow uh, nonsense. And I believed it. And that's why I said on January the 6th. I believe we had a stolen election. It's not a perfect defense, but if you're looking for that one person on the jury who just really wants to be have it proven to her or to him that Trump knowingly lied, knowingly sent people to the Capitol, suspecting at a minimum, suspecting that they would use the weapons that they had, which he knew they had, to harm people at the Capitol. I mean, you just need that one person. The committee was not particularly forgiving of the Trump uh, lawyers, were they? Hirschman came across as a buffoon talking yeah. about right after Trump told everybody to go home. We were emotionally drained and we called it a day. And then they showed what exactly was going on over in the Capitol while everybody who was advising Trump was emotionally drained. Cipollini, is that how it's pronounced? Pat Cipollini, the White House counsel? Cipollone. Cipollone. Cipollone, yeah. Uh, did not in the end come across as a patriot. He... It, it came across as though he didn't do enough to r truly warn Meadows and uh, Scalia's right. son, who right. was uh, labor secretary or commerce labor labor. Yeah, I yeah. felt that I should I shouldn't resign because they needed me. Cipollone didn't resign because I can't imagine who he'd replace me with. These are not profiles in courage. These are ambitious men who, and women, it yep. took a, a riot in the Capitol for them. That was the bridge too far. Everything else, the Muslim ban, uh, yep. that, was, that was fine, but uh, this was, was too much for them. These are not good people. They should have come forward on January 7th and 8th and been willing to testify before the House Impeachment Committee. All of them. Absolutely. They, they kept their mouths shut. You, we forget that Donald Trump was impeached because of the insurrection. Where were these people? <laughs> they, they were nowhere. But let me ask you this, or let me comment on this. I think that at the same time that Richard Nixon uh, was being impeached, that there was a genuine fear because I was here in Washington that summer that that he might do anything crazy. He might start a nuclear exchange. And I think there's 
some reason to believe, because Nixon looks like a kind of a gentle giant in comparison to Trump, that this guy was literally a madman. And if he's a madman and he's angry as hell, he could do something much more serious than just continuing to talk about the lie that he lost the election. He had the time between the 6th and the 20th of January to do an enormous amount of damage. And I don't I don't know Cipollone. I maybe he honestly felt I mean, I know I'm giving people more credit than they probably deserve, but he could legitimately have thought if they if I'm out of here, he'll pull somebody in who will tell him we should go to war with China. Well, we heard testimony from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who told Bob Woodward that he knew Donald Trump was unhinged. He assured Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi called the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Mark Milley assured her, we're pretty much not going to obey any orders that come from this madman. He called Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, called China to, to assure right. them that, look, we you you're probably watching what's going on here. We're not going to war. We saw that the Secret Service the driver refused to take Donald Trump to the Capitol for the insurrection. We learned uh, from the Nuremberg trials that just because a commander gives you an order, it doesn't mean if it's illegal, you're not supposed to follow it. Some of the norms held the Secret Service. They're not willing to admit this quite yet. But the Secret Service disobeyed an illegal order. The driver refused to take Trump from the ellipse to the Capitol to storm it with the insurrectionists. It was an illegal order. And the Secret Service did what you're supposed to do, disobey an illegal order. Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, assured China and Nancy Pelosi, he was prepared to ignore an illegal order. So we got to give credit where credit's due, don't we? Sure we do. Uh, but I I think the, the Nuremberg analogy may not be the right one here. I'm just trying to sort this through. Um, the When the president says in public, uh, I'm going to join you. Let's walk together. Let's go together down to the Capitol. Gets in his car. The Secret Service says, I'm I'm not going to take you. Does he know? Does the Secret Service agent in the car who's driving know why he's not supposed to take the president down to the Capitol? Well, they apparently the driver said we can't it's not safe for you. We can't secure the area. Yeah, but see, but see, that's 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 a lie. I mean, that's not why that's not why the Secret Service should not have taken him down. They should have been listening as I'm sure they were to the speech where he's talking about this solidarity with all the people there. And I don't care if they have guns because they don't have guns. Uh, They're not angry at me. Um, I, you know, I'm glad he didn't go down to the Capitol. Well, let's ask you, 
let's let me ask you this question. What if he had gone down to the Capitol? Do you think things would have gotten better or worse if he had gone to the Capitol? I have no idea. I, I don't either, but I'm not sure that they would get worse. The assumption is that if he had gone down there, people would have been even worse. And I'm not sure I believe that that would happen. I think he was prepared to be led into the Senate. I think his plan was to be led into the Senate and stand there like Mussolini and intimidate Republicans into not certifying, intimidating Mike Pence. I have no idea how it would have played out. Oh. I, I still, I'm still not certain they would have hanged Mike Pence. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, they were carrying weapons, yeah. but, but they never fired them. Uh, so I don't know how much of this, how far they were willing to go. I, I don't. But it's it's it was horrible. I mean, you watch the video of that and you think, look, I have a problem with the Democrats and the Republicans and capital sure. and, and how they're owned and operated by the oil companies. And we're not a real democracy, blah, blah, blah. But when you start attacking the capital, it's game, set, match. I mean, it's just over. If, if you succeed in if this is how we're going to resolve all our differences through violence, we are we are screwed. And there are way too many people serving in the House of Representatives. That's right. Who, who want who think we should resolve things through violence. You know, I'm pulling more right. and more clips from Christian nationalists that yep. I want to show you and right wing Republican elected right wing politicians who are, you know, Chip Roy, who's said, I think it was two days ago that we need guns because it keeps the government in check. That That's the, right. That the, 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 our founding fathers gave us the Second Amendment so that the people, when they're disgruntled, can try to take over the government. I mean, they, they believe this. Absolutely. I mean, it it never fails. Chip Roy, by the way, tonight, there was a very brief clip of Chip Roy talking about how serious this incursion into the Capitol was and people need to be prosecuted. So he's made out to be he is a total right wing nut. He didn't certify tonight, the election he tonight. If you just learned, if you just looked at tonight's hearing, it's a Chip Roy. Why well, that guy from Texas? And he said Trump's responsible for this. Well, he never said that during the impeachment. He didn't vote to impeach. Um, and he, he didn't vote not, to certify. He what? He didn't certify the election, Chip Roy. No, he didn't. He didn't. I mean, he. But now, you know, when, you know, I hate to sound like a right winger here, but I mean, when the right wing says these are such orchestrated hearings, this goes back to something I said minutes ago. Somebody on that committee could have been chosen to ask some harder questions than the ones that are being asked, because this does look... It looks scripted. And of course, um, with Benny Thompson not there because he has COVID, um, 
there was a great deal of attention paid to looking at this screen in front of the uh, the witness table so that particularly uh, Congresswoman Luria seemed to be reading um, the whole thing, which sounded a little kind of like, uh, you know, scripted reality well, it scripted. television. It was completely scripted. They brought in the former head of ABC News, a documentarian, to produce it. Quite frankly, if you're, if you're going to do a primetime hearing, why not put on a show? Well, no, I mean, I think it's good. I think it's, it's a great thing. But I do think that if you're trying to reach people in the middle, this appeared to be a little too scripted, just yeah. a little bit. All right. The big takeaway for you is what? That Trump. I, I, I hope between now and September's hearings, they do find more people who can talk specifically about what they know Donald Trump intended by the comments that he made at the ellipse speech and what was going through his mind when he started to say things and tweet things that were uh, about peacefulness and stay peaceful and stay blah, blah, blah. I, I like to see more evidence of his thinking at the time. And I, maybe there's nobody out there that can say it, but I, I just can't believe that Ivanka Trump does not know what her father was saying and that I just can't believe that she gave all that testimony and never really talked about what dad was thinking when he gave that speech and said he was going to walk to the Capitol or go to the Capitol right. with the rioters. One final question. Watching the video, and it's, it's chilling. It is. It, it, and, and the Capitol Police were put in a horrible, horrible position. Do you find it incredulous that... There aren't snipers with assault weapons who could order the Capitol Police to stand back and just fire? Yeah, I mean, oh, I think, I mean, I, I, I think in retrospect, horrendous as everything was, and I, I think I was on this show. Uh, you know, just like the day it happened. And um, I mean, I I spent a lot of time in the Capitol in my career here, and it was absolutely appalling. But it could have been worse. It really could have been worse because the people with the guns could have used them, could have shot people. Whether anyone was going, I, I think some of the stuff that was shown tonight makes you think that that hang Mike Pence was not just kind of a uh, a slogan that had nothing behind it. Because I think if you saw the footage tonight, the stuff that has not been seen before, you realize how close they came to doing physical damage. They had not hanging Mike Pence. They had scaffolding and a noose. Yep, exactly. But exactly. I remember New Orleans. I remember 
after Katrina, looters will be shot on sight. I don't know if it's legal for the police to shoot looters, but it's accepted that if you're looting during a riot, you will be shot. And we kind of accept that in America. I'm not so sure it's legal, but we accept it. We do. The the Capitol was being looted. I'm curious who gave the order not to shoot. Who in the Capitol gave the order not to shoot? Or were they outgunned? And had it been, oh, people of a different complexion storming the Capitol? How would that have gone? Oh, if there were people of color, they would have been treated entirely differently. They would have been shot because that's what police sometimes do. But the idea, you know, tonight again, they showed some pictures of the people in the trees who appeared to have uh, semi-automatic weapons. Where were they? I don't. I don't know if those people in the trees on the route from the ellipse to the Capitol, I don't know if anybody's tracked down. We must know who they are by now, tracked down who they were and whether they went into the Capitol. But I think most of these people, they're not that they're not incredibly dangerous, but a lot of them are cowards. They're not going to go in and do anything with the push behind them. We have thousands of people here. It's okay. Let's break a window. That's one thing. Let's storm through the halls of Congress. Let's let's sit in Nancy Pelosi's office. But it's a step beyond that to say, and if we see her, let's blow her away. And I don't think most of these people had the courage, if that's what you call it, to use those weapons once they entered the Capitol. Right. But we do we have to wrap it up. It's it's late. We we do agree that had they been black people of color, different outcome. Had they been liberals or lefties, different outcome. Yes. As we know, uh, earlier this week, when a certain television show staff was found not to have committed a crime and that prosecution was not going to occur, the right wing media that night was filled with assertions that people like the Colbert staff, uh, they were Democrats, they were liberals, and they were not prosecuted. Look at what their prosecution is of the January 6th people, as if somebody with a cigar-smoking puppet dog was the same as the people who broke the windows and sat in and stole stuff from Nancy Pelosi's office. So that's just a reprehensible comparison and it's uh, is my understanding I found it I found it unbelievable to, to look at right wing media yeah. the night that uh, the Colbert crew was uh, 
not exonerated, but the discussion was we're not going to prosecute. From what I've it's, read, I think you're talking about the Colbert Nine, who were the Colbert Nine. Yes, who, that's what I'm talking the, the about. The Colbert Nine, who uh, working with Triumph the Incel Comic Dog, nine people spent the night in jail. The the Colbert Nine yep. spent the night in jail. How many of the January Six rioters? spent the night in jail. Didn't they have to, weren't they allowed to pretty much leave? And then they came for them later. That's how, but I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't remember. I, I don't remember, remember watching, but. I rem remember watching the sun go down and the, the, the riot being calmed down and thinking they're just letting these people go. They're, they're, they're no, Vans, they're just, everybody's just allowed to, to walk out of there. Nobody's getting arrested. Pretty incredible. Well, the yep, Reverend Barry W. Is. Lynn, thank you. Thank Reverend you. Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and state. Besides being an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And go to Barry W. Lynn for a treasure trove of this man's writings, sermons, appearances on television shows from Firing Line uh, with Bill Buckley to, uh, to Crossfire and like that. Thank you, Reverend. Stay out of trouble, Thank please. you. Only good trouble. Thank you. Well, let bye us bye. now go. Thank you. Let us now go uh, to Joe in Norway. Thank you all for staying up. I know it's late. Joe in Norway, we have uh, a lot of uh, people standing by. Very quickly, what are you going to be cooking for us? Good, good morning. I'm going to be making accordion pickles. I'm going to cut these cute little uh, cucumbers into an accordion shape and pickle them in, in a sauce. And Let me see that again. What were you showing there? Pick that up again, that last thing. Okay. And and you're cooking it in the style of Peroni's disease. Is that the way it's? <laughs> All right. Sorry. It's late. All right. Excellent. Beautiful little cucumber. And office hours this Friday night, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. The professors in Marianne. And then we'll... I think Alan Minsky from the Progressive Democrats of America will be joining us. And then we'll take calls from people in our virtual studio audience. If you're watching us on YouTube, thank you. And you want to join us in the virtual studio audience, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and uh, hit pay-per-view. Well, Professor Ann Lee, let me unmute you. Your Your thoughts on this? Evening. Well, it was it was fun. It was uh, interesting TV, and I think it uh, appealed to the vast middle who had who because uh, it's in prime time, and a lot of people hadn't you know hadn't really heard about this. I find it amusing that Fox News wasn't didn't broadcast it tonight, even though it featured prominently. Um, I think they went a little further and kind of you know did a little. Uh, <laughs> craned aerial 
you know, crane shot into the into the little dining room thing and had mm-hmm. uh, Fox News on the on the big TV. I thought that was cute. Uh, but the, I think that the reality is that uh, this gets it out to people who haven't really been paying attention. And there are fair and still a fair number of them. And hopefully it, it got to uh, some of the uh, people who really haven't been paying attention. But I agree. It, it's been very scripted. But then again, Benghazi was really scripted. So, I, you know, I, I don't see this as um, that problematic. What it does is create a lot of content that will still percolate and will percolate globally. And it'll it'll sit there for the next, you know, six weeks or so until they start up again. And, uh, you know, there's still there's still a lot of stuff that needs to be revealed. I mean, we still don't know Roger Stone's role. We still don't really know what Bannon was doing. Um, We know that there were phone calls there. Um, There are people like me who believe that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Trump's got a burner phone. And and with all due respect, uh, the NSA probably has all of that, those transcripts. And I don't think you need to be super conspiracy theory oriented or paranoid to believe that that's exactly what has gone on. Um, um, uh, the, the Russians do actually make a, a kind of uh, their own version of a cell phone that, uh, you know, and, and uh, clearly it, it could have been used by. I mean, I, th- I think that there are, there are moments where coordination occurred, but, you know, that's perhaps getting a little too paranoid about it. The, Needless the, to say, there were other conversations going on while Trump was Trump didn't just sit there watching TV. He was talking to folks. Right. And that is perhaps executive privilege. Is it possible that the Secret Service uh, really can't find those text messages or they're thinking oh, hell- that? This Hell no. Yeah. I, I was listening to Malcolm Nance talk about that. And he said, oh, no, it's it's all in the cloud somewhere. There, there's stuff all over the place. Right. <laughs> I, right. I, I think it's insane when you have an apparatus that says, you know, I we actually have a pretty good uh, security apparatus, you know, when we want it to work properly. And I would say that, you know, somebody, somebody, whoever that is, has some stuff sitting around and and I think they're waiting. I think a lot of people are just waiting to see where, where all the stuff falls. And I think they, they need to save stuff. That's why we didn't see everything tonight. I think we'll see it if, uh, you know, Merrick Garland finally, you know, gets gets it together. Uh, I, they've been working on it all the time. I'm sure they have. I, you know, I, and I think that there's probably been other efforts. You know, Gar- Garland has probably had to spend a lot of time just simply marginalizing all the Trumpists in the DOJ. I mean, after all, the the uh, inspector general of the, of DHS is a Trump appointee. That's why it's gotten a little screwed up uh, relative to the um, deleted uh, 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 Secret Service stuff. So it, there's there's other 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 facts, not in evidence, as they say. Right. Kevin McCarthy came across as a befuddled hypocrite who spoke out against Trump was yelling at Trump, but then when it came time to actually do the patriotic thing, he he chickened out. McConnell spoke out against Trump, but when it came time to impeach him for the insurrection, he he bowed out. There It's probably there's probably gonna be a Mark Meadows indictment, right? That's the probably top on tops on the DOJ's list. 
Because that'll, that'll he low everything will unravel then. Right. He's low hanging fruit, though. Mark, Maddow, Mark Meadows. Seems pretty easy. Uh, Professor Jonathan Bick, your thoughts on tonight? Well, David, I'm glad it was on prime time and I'm glad that people got to see it. But uh, I think what uh, the opportunity that has been missed here is that this should have been an indictment of the Republican Party, uh, not just Trump, you know, that they are focusing on Trump and they're, they're you know, helping these people. Uh, these Republicans that did nothing for months and months uh, and, you know, after this happened, um, they're helping to rehabilitate their image. And um, I, I don't think that should be the job of the Democrats. Uh, in fact, I, sh I would hope that the Democrats, you know, unlike what Nancy Pelosi has said more than once that we need the Republican Party. Uh, we do not need the Republican Party. Uh, we need another party that has some regard for the rule of law, uh, for the idea that uh, the power of the government, the legitimacy of the government flows from the consent of the governed and that that should mean something that elections should mean something. And just because you don't like the results of it, you can't just overthrow it. So, uh, I, you know, I'm a little uh, upset. And, and also they should make a plea to say we need to reform our government institutionally. We need to do something serious about the Electoral College. Right. Because Trump would never have been president were it not for the Electoral College. So none of this would have been relevant. Bush would not have been president. A million Iraqis wouldn't be dead if it were not for the Electoral College. This is a bad institution. Never functioned the way that the uh, authors of the Constitution thought it would function, intended it to function. And it is... De, you know, destructive of democracy. Right. But we're not going to get rid of the Senate. We're not going to get rid of the Electoral College. Well, you know what, David? We have to say that we should. We shouldn't just say, oh, it's not going to happen. So let's forget about it. I'm sorry. If this doesn't prove that to you, if a million dead Iraqis doesn't show that, what are we doing here? Right. Well, it was the it was the Supreme Court. It was uh, Scalia, Scalia's father who gave us. There was no doubt who won the election if you counted the popular vote. It was right. the Electoral College, the existence of it, that handed it to the Supreme Court so they could say, stop counting the votes in a particular state. Right. Or. A more realistic approach is the Democrats learn how to win elections. They learn how to communicate properly. Is, is it realistic in a system that is this slanted against democracy to say that the Democrats are going to win 60 plus seats in the Senate, that they're going to win the House, that they're going to be somehow able to uh, reform the Supreme Court, which has a 6-3 
extremist conservative majority because of the Electoral College. Is it realistic to say that that's how we're going to accomplish this? I don't think it is, with all due respect. Okay. I, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm not saying you're wrong, but uh, I'm just saying that maybe if the Democrats worried about the Rust Belt and rural America, like they, like progressives do, or at least used to, uh, it wouldn't be systematically slanted in favor of the Republicans. Why is it slanted to begin with in the first place? It, it was slanted for an illegitimate reason to begin with. We've had over 200 years to change that. And it makes no sense to have a legislature that purposely distorts the will of the people based on geographic lines on a map. Why should people in North Dakota have more representation than someone living in California? It is inexcusable that we are defending that kind of an institution in the 21st century. Okay. One of the reasons, and then we'll go to Professor Marianne Cummings, one of the reasons North Dakota gets two senators is we had to lure them into the union. And, you know, we, we, when we ask territory to become state, they vote on it. Why would you become part of the union if you were going to be outnumbered by the rich in New York, the more populous states in New England? Secondly, I, th uh, I, I, I got to say to that, uh, everyone, no matter where they live in the country, should be represented equally uh and to say well uh, we're not going to join because we don't we don't have more voice than our population warrants uh then don't join the union well don't join something that isn't democratic if that is not you know if you feel you are entitled to have more of a say because you are rural and you have very few people uh i'm sorry then new don't. york new york is where Wall Street is. California is corrupt. Florida is corrupt. The best senators come out of Vermont, Maine, uh, uh, North Dakota. Where was McGovern from? North or South Dakota? Proxmire. Uh, the the best progressives, Lafayette, came out of Wisconsin. The, these states that all that are not heavily populated are are freed up to give us great senators who are not beholden to the banks the way you know new york doesn't produce great senators california doesn't produce great progressive senators it's these these underpopulated overrepresented states hubert humphrey minnesota I mean, I'm sure I could, you know, present a list of uh, decent senators uh, from large populous states if we go back in history. But um, I, don't, I don't find that a compelling reason to have another house of the legislature that is formed 
based on you know the way it is. And, and originally, people didn't vote for senators at all. Well, yeah. Professor, I mean, Mary- they should have taken that opportunity to say, you know what, the Senate is an advisory body. Uh, it, you know, they can slow down legislation, uh, but they can't stop it, and and they can't amend it. They, they're just there, like you know, like the House of Lords in in, in the UK to say, uh, maybe you should reconsider this, but you know, to give it this much power. And I think, you know, you look at our history and the Senate has been a graveyard for uh, many, many uh, beneficial uh, legislative uh, initiatives. Uh, And and it's been totally obstructive. So, well, you know, we saw the mob tonight and going back to Madison, we have a healthy mistrust of the mob and it is conceivable that somebody like Newt Gingrich could stage a revolution, take over the House of Representatives. It's good to have, I think, a Senate that tempers the mob. I also think that the Democrats shouldn't be asking for systemic changes in the Constitution. There should be systemic changes in the Democratic Party. There are two Two issues, rich and poor, period. The Republicans represent the rich. The Democrats have to represent the poor, otherwise, or the working class. Otherwise, they're of no value. If the Democrats represented the working class and the poor, they would win all 50 states. Well, I'll just say that the Constitution produced a two-party system where two parties are both compromised by the rich. That's the the reality of it. That's the history of it. Uh, it's flawed because we only have two parties. It's easier to control two parties than it is to control five or six. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, we've learned a lot in the last two hundred years about democracy. Uh, you know, in political science studies, um, comparative politics studies, looking at different systems to know that the presidential system is not fit for purpose. Okay, Professor Marianne Cummings, you're an elected official. You're a particle physicist as well as Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois. Let me ask you a political question. Because whether we like it or not, the midterms are a couple of months away. And it's going to be that season in one month. Am I wrong or are the Democrats doing better? It seems to me these hearings are going to hive off more voters away from Trump and the Republican Party towards the Democrats or convince Republicans to stay home for the midterms. These votes that Nancy is forcing on the Republicans in the past two weeks, she's forced Republicans to vote on abortion, contraception and same sex marriage. You know, she wouldn't force the vote on Medicare for all, which would actually help uh, us. But politically speaking, that's pretty smart, isn't it? 
Oh, politically speaking, I think the uh, I think it was the, the Supreme Court that handed that handed the Democrats a gift for the November elections. Now, if that's going to be enough, I don't know. But, you know, she's the Democrats don't really have much to show for, you know, the last 18 months. So, you know, like use what you got. And if what you got is the you know, Supreme Court making this finally scaring the professional managerial class women into being concerned about reproduction rights. They're not going to be concerned when it's just poor working class people who are having problems. You know, so that's so, yeah, these performative votes in the House, that's fine. That's what politics is about. You know, I'm not going to shed any tears over the the, the Republicans. I think that this whole uh, I, th I think this this, this whole January 6th thing is largely performative. I mean, you know, you get hearsay rather than actual witnesses. You get, it seems like everything is set up. So there's an excuse not to have to indict, you know, on some technicality, but it's set up to, uh, you know, to extract maximal uh, electoral pain. I actually don't think it's going to be as, as much as the abortion, as the abortion decision. Because people have pretty much made up their minds on on this. And it's like, you know, as I said, you know, I think it's highly it's so obviously highly part uh, partisan Liz Cheney. You know, I had to turn it off when Liz Cheney was speaking, when she's going on about the destruction of our democracy. I just remember the presidency of President Cheney and his sidekick Bush, you know, the first, the fourth, the fifth. I mean, they just took a wrecking ball to at least six different amendments, as well as international law. We're still suffering the consequences of that. And our and our place, I mean, our stature in the world has diminished. She does have a nice log cabin in in where she from Wyoming. Oh, well, yeah, she's uh, she's 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 a congresswoman from Wyoming. I think it's the only one. I think that's another one of these small right. uh, population states that get two senators, but only one congressperson. But that that backdrop, she had some kind of log cabin and didn't. Oh, it, uh, she's, Professor she's having was, trouble in her own state. And, you know, so this is and, and people need to remember she was a complete trumpeter until Trump's well, Trump, I mean, his State Department negotiated an end to the uh, to Afghanistan war with the Taliban. And that now that's her daddy's war they're messing with. Mm -hmm. So that's when she turned. And that's only when she turned. So, you know, um, and as for as far as the Electoral College, that is true. I mean, there's it, we, we all kind of most of us discovered with the 2000 election just how many steps there are between us and between a democracy, our vote and the actual swearing in of a president, which is kind of appalling. And, you know, it's still the Electoral Congress. I mean, the electors, remember, Colin Powell got like three electoral votes from what they call faithless electors. I mean, the, the electors are not after a certain point aren't bound to cast their votes from the state that sent them. You know, there, there's probably all kinds of uh, political pressure on them and if they do, and of course, the votes for uh, Colin Powell didn't change anything, so they were safe. But when, as I'm just saying, well, Professor and Ann Lee, I think that a lot of people who were like 
you know, who are going on legitimately about how stupid the electoral co college was, would not be doing it if the things had been switched around. And in fact, to in 2016, in fact, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign was concerned that people were just I mean, they were not concerned about her winning. Oh, they thought they had a blue firewall in all the electoral states, but they were concerned that people were apathetic. The support for her was very tepid, that they might be in a situation where they win the electoral vote and not the and not the popular vote. But, you know, these, as I said, the, the obscene fundraising that goes on in New York and California for Dems in particular, basically kind of ups there. But the, the money gets get some of that money gets to the local party and, you know, therefore like two or three days after election day come all these millions of votes that the Democrats don't need in terms of electoral win. So, right. you know, I would think, you know, I, 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 as a matter of fact, in the case of Trump, because like, seriously, I see Trump as a symptom and there are far more dangerous people than he is. But the a lot of the rank and file Democrats have just been whipped up into a froth over Trump. Uh, I, I, I could almost guarantee that if Hillary had won the way Trump had won, there'd be a lot of people that would be praising the foresight of our, you know, of the founding fathers for foreseeing, you know, a madman like Trump, you know, being effectively right. defeated by the electoral right. college. But that did not happen, large because because Hillary was just stupid and arrogant and clueless. Uh, she was a terrible candidate. Right. And it's and the money has made the Democratic Party as stupid as the Republican Party. And I say so Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, the two of the worst senators in the history of the Senate, have put together a piece of legislation that will reform, modernize the Electoral Count Act of 1887. It will specify that the vice president is ceremonial. He has no power to reject electors. The bill uh, would make it harder for uh, the House to object to a slate of electors. It uh, will make it clearer how the transfer of power is supposed to go between Election Day and the inauguration. So perhaps uh, is this a good thing? Maybe. Well, it might be a good thing, but I, I think it's not getting to the fundamental problem with the Democratic Party. You know, as as many people have pointed out, Joe Biden won the Electoral College by a smaller money, by a smaller margin, like 43,000 votes than Hillary lost in 2016. And when you just have this, I mean, how is some when you have a candidate like Trump, who, by the way, I think people like Ron DeSantos is kind of like, you know, looking at this, hoping that this takes Trump out. Mm hmm. Because I he, he's giving all kinds of signals that he is running or is he is interested in running. That might be hard for him to do if Trump is there kind of taking up all the oxygen. And Trump is, I mean, look, he sort of he just pulverized all those other Republicans on stage with him in a couple of the early debates. You know, right. it's like I think 
DeSantis would love for this. And and, and I think somebody earlier, it, it uh, I think it was you, David, that that said that. Look, or no, no, it was it, it was John that said that we would uh, we may be doing the dirty work for Mitch McConnell and Ron DeSantis, the, the work they don't want to do. Mitch McConnell does not want to be openly confronting Trump because he hates him, but they want their voters. So they're happy to sit back and let the Democrats, you know, just go on the offensive against Trump. Ultimately, I don't know if it's going to work. I, I, I honestly think that if anything swings can salvage the Dems, it's going to probably it will most likely be have been the uh, overturn of Roe v. Wade. Professor Ann Lee, are you optimistic for the Democrats? I mean, nobody's optimistic for the <laughs> policy, but in terms of staving off uh, a Republican landslide for November? Well, I think I think they really stepped into it with the uh, abortion. Uh, I think abortion uh, had there not been this uh, Supreme Court uh, foolishness, um, I think, yeah, we would have been in trouble. I don't think they're in trouble now. I think it's it's going to be um, the majority will could even increase a little bit. And with luck, we get um, a nice uh, filibuster proof uh, Senate. I mean, the luck will, will be, you know, because the the GOP has some really crappy crappy candidates that, uh, you know, I mean, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, J.D. Vance is running out of money. Uh, I, I think there's some interesting examples of screw ups that that are really clear. So so they could I lose. like to be optimistic about it. But on the other hand, you know, this America keeps screwing it up. So who knows? Right. Before you uh, you go, thank you for staying up late tonight. What was the most memorable moment for you during the hearings? We'll go around the well, horn. Oh, uh, the uh, the the blooper reel. I I that's the uh, that little clip there is the 2024 ad for the Democrats against Trump. I mean, I just use that. I, I it it alone is you know negates all of his other foolishness. I mean, the, the entire stolen. You know, I don't want to talk about that. Uh, you know. <laughs> it's pretty obvious what he was doing. I mean, to me, that 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 just needs a lot more framing for the next couple of days. Professor Jonathan Bick, do you have any admiration for Trump's refusal to back down even the next day to see all the havoc he wrought? And he still I mean, there is something. Almost. Well, it's pathological. He's insane, but there is something he just will not. You cannot defeat this man. Even if you even if you defeat him, you can't defeat him. Well, the quality of fighting uh, for what you believe in, <laughs> I mean, I guess he believes in himself, um, is something that the Democrats, you know, could could learn from. Uh, so I guess in, in that way, limited way, I, I would say that's uh, <laughs> admirable. But uh, no, I, I don't see that as a good thing. I just I see uh, Trump as someone who does not care what damage he does to 
the political system, what damage he does to the country. Uh, he wants his way and he doesn't want to be a loser. You know, right. his father said there are two people, uh, two types of people in the world, losers and winners, mm -hmm. and you shouldn't be a loser. And, and uh, I think that's, he's lived by that simplistic, uh, you know, morally um, destructive uh, uh, position his, his entire life. Right. Uh, and it's led him to do a lot of horrific things. Um, right. And, and if I could just say about the Electoral Count Act reform, mm -hmm. um, what it won't do is uh, instruct the states to have regard for the vote of the people in that state. Um, and it looks like the Supreme Court is going to be taking up a case where they will probably rule that it is up to the state legislature to determine what slate of electoral votes they send to Congress. So that means that the legislature of a state could entirely disregard the votes of the people of that state. Hmm. So that is crushing democracy. That is, you know, allowing an elite to determine what they think is best, <laughs> which is obviously going to be whoever controls that legislature. That's, you know, they're going to send the electors that favor that party. So it is... I mean, I don't know what kind of system you want to call that, but it certainly is not democratic. Right. It's, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be the the end of the idea of representative democracy if they if they go through with that, which I think is likely. Professor Marianne Cummings. Well, you know, as far as that's concerned, I believe there are at least two states, democratic states, that have voted. Uh, that have passed laws that um, declare that their electors goes to the candidate that has that wins the popular vote, regardless how their state votes. You know, because states sometimes <laughs> they, uh, like Illinois has been pretty solidly uh, Democratic for the last several election cycles, but you know, twenty years ago it was it, it voted for George H. W. Bush. It's been we've had Republican senators here. So um, I think that, it, yeah, they, they, we should have a careful consideration of the Constitution. I mean, there's the Constitution. There's a lot in the Constitution that needs to be reconsidered in the light of the 21st century and the inventional electricity and, you know, the franchise given to people of color and women and all that kind of people who are not landowners and so on and so forth. But I think that's actually fairly secondary to just the fact that we've had the Democratic Party has been the enabler of the Republican Party. The Democratic Party has allowed, and I think this was Bill Clinton, was shifting the Democratic Party to the right. And that had the effect of not bringing the two parties together. That had the effect of shifting the Republican Party even further right. Mm -hmm. Because Bill was taking up all the I used to even say that I thought Bill Clinton was like probably our best, the best Republican president since Theodore Roosevelt. 
But I think that dynamic and the money has basically allowed the Dem- it also allowed the Democrat to cut ties with the, with the working class and to be, you know, sort of uh, pursuing that moneyed managerial class that was traditionally the purview of Republicans, except for a few northern states. Um, so it's it's like we've got a we we don't have. We don't have a party that represents the majority of the people. So I find sometimes these debates between the Republicans and Democrats, I sometimes have to shake my head. I literally don't care in many cases, in most cases, because, as you pointed out, one group of people wins, regardless of which party has their president or their Congress. There's one group of people that always, always wins the top one percent. It's the common donors to both parties. So um, I think the only thing that can do this right now, we want to get there quickly and we got to get there quickly because the planet is melting, is disruption. We need candidates now that will disrupt Nancy Pelosi, that will disrupt it. The squad gave it their shot. They thought by working with the party people, they could get something. They got nothing. So plan B would love to hear Alan's take on this. Yes. Joining us is Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive De- Democrats of America. How do you throw yourself on the gears of the machinery, slow it down, but keep it nonviolent? I have to unmute you. There you go. Oh, unmute. There's a good book out right now. Um, I get his last name wrong. Is either Greg or Gary Girdle or well, someone can look it up. The rise and fall of neoliberalism. Right. I read. The, yeah, I read the review of it in uh, the New York Review of Books. We talked about it on Monday show. Yeah, it's a Cutner's critical of it in that. Um, in that, and I haven't read the book, but I've seen a bunch of interviews with him. He he, he feels that he left out uh, global trade, and of course, global trade is a major component of neoliberalism. Um, and um, um, but I think. I think that's the thing about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and also the problem with his with his thesis. He's saying that um, the hegemonic phase of neoliberalism is over. And maybe that's true within uh, people's sentiments and how they would like to vote. But when you organize a society around a set of structures uh, and certainly the way that uh, the, the political right, both in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, work to structure markets through legislation, um, the whole logic of neoliberalism is really inculcated in all of our actions. So, you know, how do we how do we move past it? You know, right now the Republican Party, if you're if you're attentive to their midterm um, uh, electoral strategy, the words working and class are being used next to each other in Republican talking points just about every other sentence right now. Right. We're talking about the working class, the working class, the working class. They're making a claim uh, they're trying to draw in uh, and away from the Democratic Party um, people from the working class and uh, quite conspicuously also from working class communities of color. And of course, they don't have any policies that will improve the welfare of the working class other than uh, I suppose their proposal is always, you know, let the free market be the free market, take away all regulations and barriers, and then, you know, this will create an economic boom and workers will benefit from it. Um, but other than that, they, of course, haven't changed any of their public policy positions to make it more amenable. Now, in terms of neoliberalism, 
and breaking through the structures of neoliberalism, um, the pandemic uh, forced a change in policy. Um, and that the way that the state had to become proactive for the welfare of the population, it went even way beyond what they did, of course, during the um, um, uh, financial crash, which was a huge, massive you know, government intervention, but done clearly to boost back up and support um, the sort of central um, institutions uh, that had become so prominent in society over the course of the neoliberal era, which is the, you know, the Wall Street, um, you know, um, and uh, the, the core financialized institutions. And, um, and so where we are right now, I do think that um, what happened with Build Back Better uh, was, again, you could see it in terms of that general um, theory of moving away from neoliberalism. I think it was pretty it was pretty interesting there for a while. I mean, was it Kabuki theater? Were mansion and cinema always going to break uh, Build Back Better so that it was never going to go forward? But when you had a $3.6 um, trillion dollar, um, bill passing through Richie Neal's um, Ways and Means, I mean, the moment's lost. And it seems like the Democratic Party is running away from those kind of uh, state fiscal policy uh, uh, spending programs. But it, it, that definitely represented a break with the core logic of neoliberalism. In fact, even just having Medicare you know, negotiate pharmaceutical drug prices would also represent that. So I think right now with the Democratic Party, um, you know, it's just been a very rough primary season for progressives. Um, I, we, we've done okay. Uh, we've won a few races, um, but we didn't anticipate this level of spending coming at us from APAC in particular, let's just say where it's come from. And um, Donna Edwards being the latest case. And, um, and now, you know, hopefully they won't take the defeat of Donna Edwards and now really throw down and try to knock out Cori Bush, Rashida, and Johan. Because if we lose any of those three, I think it would be a big blow to our, our movement and the effort to try to use electoral politics at the federal level to, to break with neoliberalism because the, the squad are, are, are sacred victories inside the, you know, the House of Representatives. So, um, okay, so the hearing tonight how does this relate to it all? Um, the way the Democrats have to run in the general, so we get past the primary season and hopefully, I mean, they're stupid as fuck if they take out Rashida, Corey, or Ilhan, because we're, the people that I work with, our base of progressives, they're going to be like, fuck this shit. And they, I think they'll really be, Nina was terrible, but taking out a sitting incumbent when they claim they defend incumbents and all this crap, you know, we'll see. But I think I think those three can win. Andy Levin's in a trickier situation because he's running against a fellow incumbent in Haley Stevens. Um, but we're gonna we're hopefully gonna sense that that Rashida and Corey and Rashida are on August second, and um, and so Andy Levin's also on August second. Ilhan Omar's on August 9th. There are also a bunch of other interesting races on those two days coming up. But to get back to the hearings, when we get oh past the primary season, what? What I think we'll do at PDA, and I've just written this, and it's going to come out soon in coordination with the folks at Roots Action. And so our, our general election strategy is to be like, okay, Joe Biden, you have to get the 52 senators. You can't get anything done unless you get the 52 senators. This is not even on breaking with neoliberalism. This is just defending people's human and civil rights. So you can codify Roe v. Wade and you know, we don't have to worry about this Mansion and Collins bill. If you get 52 votes, you pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, 
and you pass the For the People Act, right? So you protect democracy. Oh, Those how do you do that? Oh, hang on. How do you do that with just 52 votes in the Senate? Because you, you, you have a filibuster carve-out. You have a what? Filibuster carve-out on voting rights. But you have to every, get that. Every single senator, all 48 senators except for Manchin and Cinema actually agreed to a filibuster carve-out on voting rights back in, in I think, early February. But but if you if you don't have Manchin and Cinema, you can't get the carve-out. No, no, you get 52, so you don't need Manchin and Cinema. They can even go fuck off and become no, Republicans. I'm saying, you, are there 52 votes in the Senate to create the carve-out? You, you only need 50 plus the vice president. Um, and um, um, you win in Pennsylvania and you win in Wisconsin or also Ohio, possibly. I see. And then and then so that's the thing, get to 52 senators and then um, the House, you have to hold on to the majority. So you get those two things done. But then you also can say you're going to get uh, progressive legislation along the lines of Build Back Better. I think even from where we were two years ago or whatever that was a year and a half ago when it was originally introduced, it probably be a little adjusted for the moment. I think the major adjustment now, and this is where, you know, we can start pulling the Democratic Party away from neoliberalism and towards the progressive um, agenda is we come up with an industrial policy. I mean, how do we contend with inflation, right? I mean, of course, there's things like a windfall profits tax clearly, again, doesn't really fit into neoliberalism. It's very popular with people. Um, you don't contend the way they're contending with it now, though, will lead to electoral disaster. So unfortunately, Ann, I can't say that I fully agree with what Ann Lee said about it does seem right now that the Democrats are doing better. The polls show that the in the just the who you vote for in the House, a Democrat or a Republican, the national poll, the Democrats are back ahead. And that's the, that's because of after Roe. But Roe will motivate people. But inflation being constant between now and election day will motivate people in the other other direction. If Biden acts the way he's acted towards everything, which is to be, to be completely ineffectual, right? I mean, right now we have a situation, you know, on the international stage, people are like, you know, there's Putin and like, oh, we got Biden, you know, there's no, no show of strength or anything doesn't really impress people that he's, you know, a, a, a dynamic and a strong figure. And then in, in, in the Senate, you know, Joe Manchin is just sort of running circles around him. So he's got to step up and perform better. He's got to make people believe that these policies can do something for them. Because right now, people are going to blame him for the Fed, and the Fed's actions are going to hurt working people. And um, so, how do you the, how do you fight inflation without relying on a recession? How do you do it? Because that's um, well, what Jerome Powell is trying to give Inflation because supply and demand is out of sync. And there's just a, there's a dearth of commodities that people want to buy so they can charge more for them. And, uh, and that's, you know, it's, it, they're both, there's some price gouging, but it's also between the higher cost of energy, which is, of course, um, you know, is, is um, self-inflicted. Accounted for, accounted for in every commodity. Right? It's that, this, the yeah. higher cost of energy is self-inflicted. We, we well, but, but between that and the supply chain problems, you know, there's there's you know, it's hard to tell how much price, price gouging and how real it is. But there's clearly been a disruption to the way commodities have flown, have have, have just been made available. Also, there's a huge grain problem and very bad harvest. And then Ukraine exacerbated that. Um, there's actually, you know, there's famine in, in the world uh, in a way there wasn't uh, a year ago or two years ago. 
So, and that's going to be felt, you know, in the cost of food. And um, so you got to, but you got to address it in the ways that bring supply back into, um, into, um, uh, you know, they're not out of whack. And, um, and that does include, and I think this would be a big winning hand if he can pull this off, is to emphasize uh, industrial policy and manufacturing policy so that you, and the public is very open to that right now because they understand that the United States and the supply problems because things are so internationalized. And, uh, but you know, this is a problem with U.S. capital, will capital invest in domestic production? You know, so how do you incentivize that? How do you create it? We're giving $56 billion to the chip makers. Yeah, that's, there's that. And then, um, but, but um, you know, again, that is, to talk about industrial policy and to go against what Kuttner points out in the review, in the New York Review of Books, to go against the free trade, uh, the global free trade regiment, again, breaks with neoliberalism. So, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party um, is fucked. And um, come election time, it's disgusting. And it's disgusting in between elections. Um, but it's not as bad as it was during the core Clinton and Obama years right now. <clears throat> And then there's uh, following Bernie Sanders, there's a real a real left base, and also also the young people. If you want to hold on to young people in the Democratic Party, you know, so we have to try to make the case that um, you know out the door of their careers, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi can uh, look back on their careers and know that they had politics that fit an era that we're now moving past. Right, Professor Ann Lee, do you want to respond to that? <clears throat> No, I well, I mean, I just want to agree. I I think that uh, industrial policy is the you know the problem is we haven't had a broadly configured industrial policy, and and I think we haven't eliminated for all the usual kinds of reasons the the really disastrous uh, Trump tariff policies, and also I th- you know I think there needs to be a much wiser sense of how to implement all those sanctions. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that needs to be worked worked through, and of course, there's there's you know the usual problems of uh, you know um, uh, a, a really screwy energy policy, considering we're trying to run a, run a proxy war essentially at the same time. It's it's very very difficult. Yeah, and we we haven't gotten rid of his tariffs or his tax cuts. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I I understand sort of why they're doing it just from a stability issue, but stability and a looming stagflation slash recession is not what we need to have. We need to be much bolder about this. Right. Right. Well, yes, I have John. a question for uh, Alan. Um, why do you think it is that uh, Joe Biden uh, will n- doesn't seem like he's going to do anything about student debt relief, even though he explicitly promised at least $10,000 relief for everyone. Uh, and, and why won't he deschedule marijuana, which is overwhelmingly popular with the Democrats, overwhelmingly popular with independents, and it even has a majority of Republicans what you know and those two things are particularly appealing to young people and ways to energize the base of the democratic party what what is the do you have an explanation um well you know we um we pda um convened what's called the 
um, cancel student debt campaign. And we, we brought together the, the debt collective with a group called Freedom to Prosper, which is, does a lot of research on the subject. And we only included, at the time, only included organizations that were for full universal student debt cancellation. Uh, and this was back before the 2020 election cycle. And, um, um, you know, people forget Bernie did not support student debt cancellation in 2016, but we were able to get him to do it for 2020. And that lifted the issue a lot. And, um, um, and in fact, it was brought forward so much in the 2020 cycle that people think it's been something that people have been uh, willing thinking that something could be done about it for a while. And it really only goes back a few years that we had this much consensus on it. Um, why won't he do anything? Um, um, Joe Biden's career was spent as the senator from Delaware, which was the, um, you know, his his um, his role inside the neoliberalizing Democratic Party was to um, be the guy who was the liaison to um, the debt industries of America. So, um, you know, it's a difficult uh, clawback for him to uh, act in a way that runs counter to everything he did throughout his career. I mean, he was considered like the senator from MBNA. Okay. Let's wrap it up. It's late. Thank you, Professor Ann Lee. Read Professor Ann Lee over at the Daily Co's. Her handle is Annie Lee. Professor Jonathan Bick, we will see you, I hope, Friday night for Office Hours, where you teach The Twilight Zone as well as Star Trek. And I appreciate your, uh, I, I liked your fire tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Especially since it was late, uh, you, you, it, was, it was good. It was like wasabi and horseradish combined. So thank you. And Professor, when it comes to democracy, David, I, I feel strongly about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I love that. It, it cleared the cobwebs out of my soul. And Professor Marianne Cummings, follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl, and we'll see you tomorrow. Let's go. I think, did we say goodbye to Alan Minsky? We, we said goodbye to Alan Minsky. Let's go to Joe in Norway. Uh, what do you got there? By the way, before you show us the food, how, what kind of heat wave are you people having in Norway? Um, I'm actually pretending that it's summer. That's why I made these dishes to imagine that it's not 50 degrees here. For the past month, it's been rainy and 50 and 10 degrees C. So that's so, nice. Uh, <laughs> I'm a desert rat. So I'm a little out of my elements here. <laughs> okay. So tell us about the food and then we'll wrap up the show. So, so what I made was a, a cold noodle noodle salad mm -hmm. with julienne pap paprikas and I grilled the tofu and a little bit of soy sauce. Got black sesame seeds and a, a tiny soy sauce dressing with some carrots as well. What this am I, one what am I really doing fun. with my life? What 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 am I? I'm, it's it's cool in Norway. Uh, I'm starving. <laughs> the food isn't fresh here in New York City. You've got what is that? What so so this is a cucumber that I accordionized. So I, I cut it on both sides laterally, and it turns into a kind of accordion shape. And then if you break it into bite-sized pieces. 
they're, they're just fun to chew on. It gives you more surface area of crunch, which is what you're, you're looking for in your pickles. So this is just a quick pickle of um, rice vinegar, garlic, sesame seed, and scallion. You can put sesame oil, um, chili, whatever you like. That's a really fun, fun technique. Fantastic. Fantastic. And we'll see you at office hours. Alan Minsky. Yes. Thank you, Joe in Norway. We lost you, Alan Minsky. Yeah. Mm, sorry about that. My That's connection right. we're, dropped. We're wrapping up. Yeah. Um, no, thank you. Great conversation. And by the way, Ann Lee, uh, boy, uh, great observations. And yeah. it's from everybody, too. So thank you, David. Thank you. Read her over at Ann, as Annie Lee over at the Daily Co's. Everybody should donate to the Progressive Democrats of America. And thank you, Alan Minsky. Let's go to Mexico, where Rodrigo is standing by. Hello, Rodrigo. Hi, David. How are you uh, feeling? I don't know if Alan is still around. I have a question for him. Okay, Alan, we have a question from Rodrigo in Mexico. I'm hoping to recruit you to intervene in this self-inflicted gunt of Nomiki running against Kristen Gonzalez. As a quick recap, someone asked Nomiki to run for New York State Senate, and she announced a week after AOC endorsed Gonzalez along with the entire New York slate of DSA candidates. It's possible that Nomiki can win and Gonzalez can't, but it's highly unlikely considering the New York Democrats gerrymandered her district to include more white people uh, is the reason Nomiki now lives in Christian Gonzalez's district. I won't go into the drama and the meltdowns from leftists, but I will point out that Nomiki has a plan to economically recover from the pandemic months, probably years before it's actually over. Um, well, uh, yeah, I do know Nomiki, and I know the situation, and I think it's unfortunate. Um, I think, um, you know, I know that the districts got reset. I think very sh like the next day she announced she was jumping into the race. And, you know, I think it's it's this is something that the left as we get become more mature. And this is going to be obviously a hopefully a lesson learned. I know that maybe uh, it won't be learned this time, but we do have to get an awareness out, particularly in, in New York City where DSA is doing a really great job of um, building a bench for the left and running candidates in local races that, you know, sort of activists need to, we need to really sort of impress upon people that you check with, you know, organizations like DSA, you find out who's in the race and progressives splitting the vote uh, and then allowing um, moderates to win is something we have to find a way to not have happen. So this is a pretty bad example of it. Um, I don't know Namiki well enough to be the person to do that. Um, I do know somebody who knows her very well. Um, I don't want to put him on the spot by mentioning his name. And of course, I know the whole apparatus in New York. And I'm, I'm, I do like Namiki and the work she does on so many fronts. But I, I agree with you, Rodrigo. I think, um, I think she sort of jumped into something where the, the, a lot of infrastructure was put in place to support the DSA-backed candidate. And um, I, I hope that she can find it in herself to to unify the, the progressives and drop out of the race. But I don't know her well enough to, to um, I think what was unfortunate about it, Rodrigo, though I do have to say this, is when she did jump in, and I don't know her very well, but I can only imagine she sort of found herself like under attack in a very aggressive way right away. 
And I think that's probably not the best way to negotiate these kind of things. I mean, of course, I'm not in any way blaming you, but uh, it did. It was very evident on Twitter that people said some very untoward things. And I thought that was unfortunate because uh, I can only imagine she might have dug her heels in because of that. But I certainly would hope that she could jump jump out of the race and um, and and support the candidate with the grassroots uh, infrastructure of support. Um, but uh, again, uh, yeah, I like Namiki Kunstalas. She's fantastic. So, um, you know, but that's what I would advocate for. But I'm just not the person to intervene. I don't know her well enough. Thanks. I like her too. I've been asking uh, Harvey JK to bring her on to talk about the inner workings of the Democratic Party. Uh, thanks. Uh, thank you, Rodrigo. And thank you, everybody. I'm, I'm off. Thanks. I had prepared something else, but I wanted to tell you about credit cards in Mexico. Uh, the previous president is widely acknowledged to be little more than a wife-beating, closeted homosexual who will be remembered for that and not for anything he did as a president. But one of the things he did was allow banks to do whatever they wanted with credit cards, but also... What, which pre which Mexican president? Uh, Peña Nieto, the oh. previous one. Okay. Go he ahead. made it into law that they should offer at least every bank one cheap debit card and one cheap credit card with no frills, no bells and whistles, with minimum interest rates. And you have to know about this and ask about the cheap card to get one, but they exist and people use them. The current president, Mexican president took the Army Bank, renamed it to Banco del Bienestar, Bank of Wellbeing, if only because it's not a welfare bank, and is using it as part of his self-aggrandizing campaign. But you can still open a bank account there and the fees are ridiculously low. Uh, that in comparison to the horrors you were describing in your opening. And regarding the January 6th hearings, I mentioned before, I believe, the white privilege of people who showed up to the Capitol because they thought they were entitled to taking over their own government by violence, but they also threw public tantrums when they discovered they were on no-fly lists. Something else worth remarking on is that the Democrats and the never-Trump Republicans are trying to organize the hearings as if it was a reality TV event, hoping this will get more people to watch. This is the fate of the free world, and everyone has just accepted that the last chance for people to realize the truth is to treat it as reality TV. Thank you. Thank you. Great job, Rodrigo. Here's a list of the top lobbyists in Washington, D.C. They come out uh, every quarter to re release what they're spending. These are the top spenders in the past quarter. Chamber of Commerce spent about $16 million last quarter. National Association of Realtors, $15 million. The Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America spent $6.3 million. I'm bringing this up because Congress comes pretty cheap. I mean, you can buy votes for a couple of million dollars. The American Chemistry Council, $5.8 million. AT&T spends about $6 million in the past quarter, so that's about $20 million a year on lobbying. I mean, that's not, they have, they're not spending a lot of money to buy Congress. 
Facebook spends $5.5 million last quarter, so that's about $20 million a year, to own Congress. Amazon buys Congress for $5 million last quarter, $20 million. That's, that's all Amazon has to spend, $20 million in one year to get Congress, to get all those government contracts. Just the uh, American Hospital Association, $4.6 million. Pfizer, $3.4 million. So what is that? About $12 million a year to make billions from Washington, D.C. Lockheed Martin only spends $3.4 million last quarter to get all those contracts. They just have to spend about $13 million a year. Boy, our Congress, they really are cheap whores. They come cheap. You can get them for cheap. Well, that's our show. I want to thank all our guests and thank you for staying up late for uh, our recap of the hearings. Thank you to Ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess. Read his new piece over at the Daily Beast. Why the hell isn't Joe Biden ending the federal war on cannabis? Thank you, Ben Burgess. Listen to his podcast. Give them an argument. Thank you to Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Ethan Hershenfeld. Go stream Thug Thug Jew, his special right now. Emil Guillermo, read him over at the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund and listen to the PETA podcast. He hosts the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And then I want to thank the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Joe in Norway, and of course, the professors in Mary Ann, Professor Mary Ann Cummings, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, and of course, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of the Progressive Democrats of America. We will be doing office hours Friday night starting at 8 p.m. I will be there for the first 90 minutes taking your calls and then the community takes over. And if you want to come to office hours, just go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit office hours. It'll take you right into the, the room. Just hit office hours. Another way to, uh, to get an invitation for office hours is to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday and it's a recap of the week. It includes an invitation to office hours. So please sign up for my newsletter. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast. We have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe. Give us a good review. Wherever you're listening to us right now, give us a good review. Today's show is produced by Dan Frankenberger, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Hannah Feldman. I'm David Feldman. Thank you so much for staying up late with us tonight. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. And I will find some music in a second. Here we go. We will see you uh, at office hours. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. 
Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way. A billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. All I really need is a second job or a third. Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd. Of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Oh, yes I am The American okay. people love me. The election was completely stolen from me. That so that makes me the 45th and the 46th president, David. Biden okay. is 46A. Hmm. 46A. You know what the A stands for, David? No, I do not. Ask me what the A stands for. Ask me. Okay. What what does the A stand for, Mr. President? The A stands for a stolen election, David. <laughs> Please welcome. A stolen election. That's what... Okay, let's turn to that big rally this Saturday. So oh, much love at the rally, David. So much love. Great people, great people in Florence, South Carolina. So smart, so discerning. And it was sold out, David. They were packed in tighter than Chris Christie sitting in a coach seat. Get it, David, because of the weight. Can you get it, David? Are you following me? Get it, I get it. Can't fit into a coach seat, David. Do you get it? I get it. You can have that one, David. That's another freebie. I know you people like freebies. I know. I know you love the freebies. What people? Your people, David, the free brews. (laughs) Oh, boy. I can't help it, David. You know, they say that Zelensky is a comedian, but I'm so much I'm so much funnier than that Zelensky guy. I just don't get him, David. 
I don't get him. I don't get that Nanette Fabre. I don't get them. Anyway, the people of South Carolina love me, David. I do great there because their elections aren't rigged. You get an honest count in South Carolina, unlike Georgia or Arizona or Vermont, where I won in a landslide, David. But they rigged it. They rigged it, David. I started the civil rights movement, David, giving basketball to the blacks. Okay, I'm not really sure that's true. I gave them basketball and rap. You rap. Are you familiar with Sugar Hill, David? The Sugar Hill people, the gang, the Sugar Hill gang. Of course, Anglewood, New Jersey, the Sugar Hill gang invented rap. David, not even close, David. I invented rap. I gave the blacks basketball and I didn't just give them rap. I invented it, David. You invented rap. The freestyle stuff, you know. David, Wonder Mike, Master G, Big Bank, Hank, they used to do work for my father. And they saw me sitting in the office and there was a nephew on my mom's side who worked for us. And he he was slow, David. Hmm. Can you say that word now, slow? I think you can say slow. Well, let's just say he had a bad stutter and a stammer. He had a stutter and a stammer. You couldn't Mm -hmm. understand what the hell he was saying. His name was Lonnie. So naturally, I called him Lilani because he had a stutter. So instead of calling him Lonnie like boring people would, I called him Lilani. It's a nickname, David. Okay, I don't understand what this has to do with you inventing rap. I gave rap to the blacks, David. Okay, you told me that. I I don't understand. I did rap, David, and I gave it to the blacks. I'd go, Lanny, and the blacks started making records, go back and forth, one by one, two by two. I mean, scratch. Back and forth, they would go, wicka, 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 wicka. Scratching, yes. We used to call it, he's scratching. We used to call it, Lanny-ing. Then the white man. The white man didn't like that, David. He made it his own and he changed it to scratching. But believe me, David, it was and it made my father smile, David. It made my father smile. My father rarely smiled. Great man, but I made him smile. I was the only one who could make my father smile by making fun of his wife's stuttering nephew, Lonnie. And that's how I invented rap, making fun of a stuttering and stammering nephew of my wife. Of your mother, a little Freudian slip there. Of my mother, sorry. A Freudian, yeah, yeah, same thing, same thing. You know, (laughs) wife, mother, daughter, all the same. (laughs) Yes, I invented rap, David. I invented rap. I gave it to the blacks 